WTBC Radio is sponsored by Live Bar. Dairy-free, gluten-free, soy-free, corn-free, and GMO-free made right here in Salem, Oregon, just like this very podcast. Blueberry, vanilla, kale, raspberry, kale, maca, coffee, maple, cacao, ginger, lemon, turmeric, all handmade, handcrafted, hand-cooked, hand-everything by people from the very city in which these bars are made. Livebars.com for ordering information and all of the locations where you can pick these up in the wild. That's right. For more information, please visit livebars.com. That's L-I-V-B-A-R-S dot com. Livebars.com. Sponsoring WTBC Radio. Eat real food. It's our conversation with Tim Malone. Filmmaker, animator, and archivist. And yet another Negative Land fan. Have you been watching your Cathead Theater? WTBC Radio, and beautiful anywhere, anyway. The really interesting thing about making stuff is that you really can't predict where these things go or what happens to them when you're done. They just go, and you have a new thing to make. (laughs) It's not like you get a, a lot of time sitting around going like, wow, that thing out there. Let me follow its every ebb and flow. First of all, ugh, how tedious is that? But second, like, there's more stuff to do. Like, we have to keep going. Like, we can't just, you know, ignore uh, all of this other uh, pressing material that needs to get out there, you know? So uh, these things go out there, and they live their own lives, they have adventures. Uh, people interact with them in different ways or find them in strange, uh, odd means. And that's kind of the point. Like, these things aren't meant to be bottled and hidden away from the world as if, like, they were just going to be, like, kept. I have this collection now. Look at it on my shelf. Uh, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. These things are meant to find places uh, in the world, out there, however they get there, (laughs) or or whoever finds them interesting. That's kind of the weirdest part about all this. I don't have any control of it once it's done. Once it's out, it's leading its own life. And that's a little bit weird sometimes. It, It leads to some strange conversations for sure but it's also invigorating you know like ugh, how boring would it be if you were responsible for every single thing that you made you had to keep track of it constantly your whole life marking its comings and goings and 
Ugh. It's like having children, but without any of the benefits of building a family that actually has meaning to you. <laughs> These things are their own things. It's not that I hate them or that I have a um, bad, negative relationship with them. Uh, I dare not even call it art, as you can probably tell. Like, it just doesn't sound right. And here I am saying, I dare not. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound right. But I really wonder, because once we make something and we try to share it, you know, part of it is that that dialogue is hoping to be breached, that we break through this silence of being alone and collected with our own thoughts over time, that uh, somehow that there's a benefit to uh, getting outside of that and, and engaging. And, and, and all of these things try to engage. That's the whole point. But I don't even get to control how they engage, which is the real unusual part of it. You know, like, I might be talking in one point of reference, but other people are reading it in very different ways. And I find that part of this world that we live in very fascinating, you know? What do we do with these things that people are making and sending out into the world? How do we interact with them? And, and when we do interact with them, uh, what uh, is being created through that interaction? I mean, I don't know if I know the answers to these questions. Uh, I'm just a guy in a studio trying to make sense of the world. But uh, I'm hoping that some of these conversations open up doors to places that we don't normally go. And maybe these little things that we're putting together, these, these shows, these uh, podcasts, these broadcasts into the world, maybe uh, they're connecting in some way that uh, I will never be able to predict nor... Will I ever uh, really be able to understand? We're all trying our best to uh, reach out and connect, and, and, and I'm very pleased with that as a way of uh, trying to uh, operate in this world. As I continue, I feel like connecting is really the only thing left. It's, it's what, what we have to do. It's what we were kind of designed for. We have these ways of sending words out, of trying to reach each other. It would be a real shame if uh, we were just meant to sit quiet alone by ourselves for the rest of forever, is what I'm getting at. When we talk about uh, interacting with the world around us, I think Tim Maloney might be a really good example of how you can do this and build a small career for yourself that's completely yours, that's dictated by your uh, interests, and yet is playing with the world around it in terms of how to create art. Uh, his work with Disney is obviously working with properties that you know they have and control, uh, but his work with Negative Land is, of course, all about appropriation and remixing culture in a way that uh, is creating a dialogue. He's engaging the world in some way that is saying, like, look, this is a thing I made out of other people's stuff. But 
isn't this art too? And that's kind of the collective work, you know. Can you say that a movie that a bunch of people worked on belongs to one person? I mean, it's just as much the actor's movie as it is the guy who did the lighting. In fact, the guy who did the lighting should probably get more credit. <laughs> I mean, you can't see anything without that. Eh, anyway, dumb joke. But my point being is that uh, Tim is one of these people who kind of works within groups on collaborative projects, and uh, he's an artist in and of his own right. We didn't even get to the cartooning aspect of his career, which is uh, um, also part of what he does. Uh, but it's that and so much more. And so uh, I hope that uh, you can enjoy this one. And consider your role in dialoguing with the universe. How does that play out? What, how does that work? What, uh, what conversations are you looking to strike up? UTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere, anywhere. This conversation was recorded on December 14th, 2017. One way that I think people might know you uh, most, uh, and one way that um, I remember being very familiar with, well, I knew your work before I knew that you did it, was uh, Cathead Theater. Which um, oh yeah, there's actually a new uh, 360 degree version of it that you <laughs> you just put out. <laughs> there is yeah. Well, you know, I had the terrible misfortune of uh, of making a lot of things in standard definition video right at the moment when everyone switched over to high definition video. It was not having, it was not weird. Having, it kind of came out of yeah. nowhere. It's not you know. Do you want to talk about conspiracy theories? Because uh, <laughs> it's a great one. There's a great one there. Now, uh, you know, and this is not a conspiracy theory. It's actually uh, uh, fairly well documented, and that is somewhere around 2009, uh, a number of things happened um, all at once to suggest that somewhere along the lines, uh, our uh, media apparatus acted uh, in the manner of a cartel to mm -hmm. uh, to switch everything over sort of forcibly. Right. Um, and that has to do with things like, uh, you know, movie theaters not accepting uh, film prints anymore or not accepting. I'm sorry. The, uh, um, the distributors not sending them the movie theaters having to convert over to digital uh, camera manufacturers not manufacturing film cameras anymore. Uh, lots of things sort of forced us into a digital switch over sometime around 2009. That's also when uh, didn't kind of right around then was when Congress passed the law to turn all television to digital. Right, yeah. Well, it, it's a strangely relevant conversation considering the day we're talking about all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So uh, that's the thing is that that certainly I don't you know, I don't know that 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 you know, the the regular market forces on their own would ever have gotten rid of standard def anything because mm -hmm. there were too many people clinging to it. And it's very expensive to to transfer everything over and that that of course was always my problem too. I had more than enough resources for producing miles of material in standard def but uh <laughs> back in the back in those days was still a little pricey certainly for me so sure well and, and i am currently staring down all of this old gear and uh media where yeah. like you know I, I have boxes of these cassette tapes and and one yeah. kind of rickety cassette player to <laughs> <laughs> oh my god don't talk to me about cassettes i still have this i have like 10 bankers boxes full of over the edge i'm still looking at over here <laughs> yeah well you know, we will get to that we will get to that but uh sure. in terms of cathead theater mm -hmm. this to me felt like um 
something from like the the earliest meme days of the internet you know where uh it was being passed around among all these kind of like cool guys in offices who are like this makes me laugh you know and it was a little and it it had this kind of edge to it that was like not what a lot of internet culture prior to that was um it had like a sophisticated nonsense to it. <laughs> That's nice of you to say. I don't know any of this because, uh, of course, I make things and send them out and then I never hear about them. You know, I'll hear once in a while someone will say, I liked it. Mm-hmm. Or uh, The good thing about Cathead Theater was that somewhere along the line, I think it was WFMU that gave me the boost, but somebody blogged it. I'm pretty sure it was FMU. Mm-hmm. And it just skyrocketed. And, uh, I mean, it, it hasn't quite hit three million yet. But it's pretty close, two million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand. You know, it's like very close to three million views. Yeah, and, and the, of course, this happened right, you know, like a year before they did revenue sharing. So I haven't got a dime from it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and and the, and the funny part about this too is that like it is incorporating like several vectors of things where, um, and and this is I think similar for a lot of the work that you've done where. You know, like there's a little bit of cut and paste. There's a little bit of public domain, but there's also this kind of funny uh, slant at the center of it. Um, was all of that kind of a conscious effort when you were putting this together, or was it more kind of like, "Hey, this is funny. Cats talking." Um, well, someone wrote a like a kind of a serious article about me once that I thought was amusing because. The key, the key thing that I accidentally said then, and now I'm going to stick with it because I think it's good, is that, uh, <laughs> is that I, I tend to be a little like a magpie. I tend to like kind of pick and choose things that that attract me and 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 pick up on, you know, various little shiny objects that I find lying by the side of the road, yeah, and, and stick them together. Uh, so yeah, there's a little bit of that going on. It's like uh, the cats talking was just something that I thought was funny because I have cats. <laughs> right yeah you as, know, as, as cat owners we do see things that uh that other people are not uh privy to <laughs> they just make me laugh i look at them and they make me laugh so the idea that you know you would do something as as well the idea for cat head theater really came from when i was working at disney mm. and we were coming up with uh all sorts of weird uh pitches to our boss None of which he cared for. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he did. He certainly rejected uh, rejected a string of them. And at some point, we were just making up the weirdest things we could possibly make up, you know, right? Uh, just to see if it would fly. And Cat A Theater was in that pile of <laughs> just a, sort of absurd things like, no one will even look at this twice. This is so weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. But then, of course, we, you know realize that uh, those are always the best ones right those are always the more interesting ones yeah yeah well and what things that you can't predict are going to become popular become popular for random reasons too you know <laughs> yeah I'm pleased that one did uh someone had given me a paper theater uh a year before uh and one of those things that you it's a you know from victorian times you'd sort of you know, pull out the pieces and uh, assemble it and that's what the theater for Cat Theater is. This is old Victorian paper theater. That's very cool. You see, again, I assumed that was something that you kind of shopped in from like a image file you had or something. Oh, no, no. That's a real thing. Yeah. And those, of course, are my cats. Uh, I had, <laughs> uh, got a green screen and uh, gave them, you know, things to eat, uh, catnip and drippy fish goo and everything else. You right, right. Anything cream. to get their mouths to kind of... Yeah. 
yeah, to see if you can get their mouths to open up. Uh, and my my dearly departed Zero, who uh, just passed away last year, she was eighteen. So. Oh wow! Yeah, she was in it, and then the uh, the peculiar uh, Cinder, uh, who <laughs> was a little kind of runty cat with a million thousand birth defects, uh, <laughs> being Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. There you and go. <laughs> They're all dead now, I guess, huh? So, uh, and then of course, Round Eye uh, played the part of Fraser Tomcat. So, yeah. So, what people, from the, hmm. people from the Midwest may know um, uh, WGN in Chicago used to run a thing on Saturday or Sunday afternoon called Family Classics, hmm. uh, and it was hosted by a guy named Fraser Thomas. And he was one of those guys that would sit in the overstuffed armchair and pull the book off of the shelf and tell you you're going to see Robinson Crusoe or uh, Ah, got it you know, one of those old family movies on a Sunday afternoon. So that's Frasier Tomcat. He's that guy. <laughs> that's fantastic. Now, what, what made you uh, want to say like, okay, I got to do a 360 degree version of this uh, recently. Was it something like you just wanted it to live in a new format or? Uh, I started working for a, um, it was a, interactive children's television concern back in 1990 oh boy three and four i think mm. uh so this is nothing is ready i mean this is early infancy internet stuff right, uh, right. and it was back then that people began talking about stuff like virtual reality and and not quite the 360 movie concern but the whole immersion into you know uh into the the media and all that and there were a couple of things about it that always struck me as, you know, utopian to the point of, of idiocy. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them was that there is an, I, I, and I still believe this, is there is a fundamental incompatibility between interactivity and storytelling. Oh. Because on the level of storytelling, you are asking someone to take control of time and space and your experience and give you a story. You sit by the fire and the storyteller controls time and tells you what you need to know as you need to know it. Right. Whereas with gameplay and simulation, it's exactly the opposite. You are in control and you work around in the sandbox and you push things around here and there. Right. They're on a continuum. And the more you serve one, you don't serve the other. Mm. So you're always going to, anytime you try to put things right in the middle, you're not going to do either one of them very well. So this leads us to the problem of VR and 360 videos and these other things. And I've been saying this for 20 years. It's amazing no one listens to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe they will now. I, maybe because I wake weird movies with cat heads and nobody can take that seriously. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that if you have the ability to look around you wherever you, know, wherever you want to look, you have taken from cinema one of the most important controls that you have as a, as an artist in cinema and that is composition right you no longer get to show somebody what the view needs to look like you no longer get to direct the composition yeah your ability to control the viewer's eyes and the way that yeah. they you, editing so cleanly does uh, editing is gone too that's yeah. the second thing you lose because you no longer control the time that is spent looking at one thing or another right so what are you left with theater Mm-hmm. <laughs> the actual experience of being in front of performers. Yeah, exactly. So you're left with theater, you know, especially theater in the round techniques and like living theater techniques and all those things. So, you know, VR cinema is once again a misnomer. You know, they're, they're, you have robbed cinema of its most important traits if it's VR. 
If right. it's 360, you get to choose where you're looking. I still control time because I'll still tell you. But I do in theater, too, don't I? Mm-hmm. You know, I tell you the beginning and the ending of the play. Uh, but you get to look around. You get to choose where you're going to, you know, where, what you're going to look at, which performer you're going to look at. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a, the clever part of that 360 uh, theater. Yeah. And, and you know, we're talking about this in an audio form, unfortunately. Sure, uh, sure. So we recommend that people maybe pull this up and kind of take a look at it. Because in the original one, you're just watching the cat heads talk, which is right. it's very cute and clever. In this one, like you can look at other audience members that are yeah. w- watching the performance. You can check out the parts of the theater. You can even just look at the sky if you want. You know, just like, sure. lie back and, and and watch it. And it's one of those things where you can't avoid that the cat heads are reciting Shakespeare at you. Uh, but it's this really kind of like excellent where like, you know, you get to actually decide what you're looking at while you're doing it. If for, if for some reason the cat heads wasn't entertaining to you. (laughs) (laughs) You can watch it again in that case. Uh, and this was a kind of a proof of concept one. I have a friend who has one of those, uh, he's got the vive, uh, which is the, one of those that you stick over your head, you know, you have Mm -hmm. the goggles and you have that and it moves all around with you. So uh, when you watch a 360 video, uh, and if you watch Cathead Theater with a Vive, uh, you're standing in the groundlings. You really look, it looks like you're standing there just slightly below stage level uh, in the audience looking up at the, at the performance. Right. So it just kind of puts you right there. It's really fun. Well, and like, and you're kind of taking it again to another level where like the initial idea is like, oh, hey, you can just watch somebody perform a play. And right. you're kind of saying like, well, yeah, you could do that or you could have people watching completely made up characters perform a play, you know, in this three dimensional space that appears as if they're bodies, but they have cat heads. (laughs) Yeah. See the thing that, uh, the thing that I think is going to work with a lot of this new technology is new ways of looking at it. Have you talked to Vicky yet? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, um, and we talked about gone, gone, gone beyond her, 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 um, cinechamber film that she made. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And it's because uh, Vicky understands that a new medium, you know, a new way of presenting things is going to require you to think about it entirely different ways. Right. Like she's the only one I know. Well, there are very few people doing stuff for Cinema Chamber right now, but she's certainly the only one I know who's really thinking about how, you know, that ring of images works and how that can function for the audience you know right right well and and and, you know this kind of gets at something that she and i briefly mentioned but i think is relevant to this conversation is that these technologies always exist before the artists have access to them so you have this thing that can do all these like amazing projection things and illusions but uh it isn't until an artist comes in who actually understands that technology and how they could use it creatively before the content uh, that's interesting exists you know yeah and that's not you know it's not a difficult thing it's not like any of us sit around agonizing about it you know head in our hands going oh what am i going to do with this you know right right, right. <laughs> you're more you like know? waiting for the time and access to it <laughs> well yeah so when you get access to it then you go oh wait now here's something fun that we can do with this you know mm-hmm. yeah. oh like here's a possibility for the medium you know Right. Uh, it's just sort of automatic the way you, you do with any medium, right? You, you pick it up and you figure out, well, what does it do? Let's, let's try it out, you know? Right. Oh, here's a, here's a new kind of pencil. Let's see what it does, you know? <laughs> yeah, and there's that point where it goes from, oh, this is the lightness of the lead. This is what the image looks like. It kind of switches from that to, like, now I'm making a big painting with it, you know? Um, right, because once you sort of figure out the, the, um, 
you know, the capabilities and everything. Uh, I've, uh, I know a lot of cartoonists and, uh, um, one who I'm uh, very glad is my, is my friend and who I admire a great deal is, uh, is Jim Woodring. Mm. And, uh, uh the, the, uh, um, oh gosh, um, um, not Fred, um, but uh, Frank. Frank. Yes. Yes. And, uh, Jim once said something to me about, uh, about cartooning. I think it's about all art really. And he said that what it requires is mastery and authority. Mm. And this is his way of, and perhaps he's modified his thinking on it even more brilliantly by now. But <laughs> <laughs> what I liked about that was that he sort of divided into two sections. The mastery was knowing your tools and knowing what effects you're capable of. Right. And knowing what your palette is, I guess, you know, like, oh, I, you know, and it's different for everyone, right? These are the things that I do well with that medium. Mm-hmm. And then the authority part was, you know, the, the sort of confidence to do them. Mm-hmm. Right. So the art doesn't show experimentation in the same way that, you know, your sketchbook does. It shows experimentation in the sense of, you know, I know what I'm doing. How does that work for the audience? Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, too, because like the um, the emphasis on learning the tools always seems to be secondary to a lot of people. They always want to be the one that makes like a great song or a great painting or a great film. But like the reality and this is the thing that you find out when you talk to a lot of people who make art is that there's so much more time spent just learning the tool, just like figuring out how the editor works so that when you put film together yeah. that you, yeah. you know, it's going to look like this, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To the point, I mean, if you work with computers and with software, it can be, you know, this stage of my life, you know, a new piece of software comes out and you almost dread having access to it. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you know oh there's at least a month lost where you're just learning yeah, I, everything. <laughs> What does this do now? I mean, there are some things that I have strenuously avoided throughout my entire life. One of them has been uh, 3D modeling. Mm. You know, it just seems to me like that is a, a world that I will get sucked up, it sucked up into and never, you know, never come out of. <laughs> right, right. The, the, the possibilities are too, you, there's too much to learn. <laughs> yeah. And so I, so what ends up happening is I dabble in it anyway and get myself in trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, there's just so much that you can get caught in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, you've got a couple of newer projects that I'm curious about because mm-hmm. one of them uh, involves the Firesign Theater. Now, are you yeah. producing on this or what's your role in the Everything You Know is Wrong? Uh, my role is Taylor's friend. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Now everything knows wrong. Well, it's done, right? The disc is done, so it's uh, it's available, and we're almost out of the first printing. So I got to figure out what to do about that. But that was definitely, you know, tailored, spearheaded all that. What I did was, you know, support in every level, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, it was restoration of uh, materials from the Firesign Theater's archives from the the sort of uh, the juicy period, you know, the '68 to '74 period, right? Uh, and when they were on Columbia period. And a lot of bizarre stuff. And Taylor's sort of the, the genius behind this because he is monomaniacal when it comes to, you know, finding the best sources for certain materials. And uh, there's a great section in the in the video where he has taken a bunch of Super 8 movies that were recorded during uh, Firesign's radio shows or early radio shows. So this oh, is some cool. of them. Uh, you know, like when they're doing Dear Friends stuff and when they're on uh, KPFA and everything. Wow. And he has found those Super 8. No, this is more bizarre. Is this, the Super 8 was taken during the radio show. 
Mm. So he found the moments in the radio shows that sync up to the Super 8. Wow, that's some detective work. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was... It was. It wasn't the war. It wasn't the hardest because you can actually hear the Super 8 camera going off in the background if you listen very closely to those radio shows. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, the, the most, you know, the, it wasn't a miracle, but it's but still, you're listening close. for, you know, you're listening yeah. for a click in a haystack, so to speak. <laughs> exactly, and in a certain kind of noise too. So we were able to synchronize those. They have never been seen that way. Oh, that's so. That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like the first human being, being the person to sync them up, whoever saw that stuff happening in, in, in the real time since it happened. And you had to be, been in the room, you know? Right. Very cool, very cool. And so for people who haven't seen this film, or maybe even we should roll it back a little bit more, for people who don't know sure. Firesign Theater, um, this is a... I, I, I dare not say comedy. Uh, they're an, almost like an idea uh, performance group. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's the, the sort of deeper appreciation of them. What most people do, really don't know about them, though, is that they really are one of the cornerstones of American comedy. Right. Without Firesign, without them putting out those records. And this is something that I came to them kind of late. I mean, it's because I knew Taylor. I did not grow up with them. I did not have the older brother who played their records for me. I didn't know how important they were even until maybe half a dozen years ago. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty late to the game myself, but uh, yeah. I mean, the only reason I was even able to kind of become aware is that the records are so cheap nowadays. You can find yeah, them yeah, in yeah. thrift stores like everywhere in America for like a dollar a piece. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of old hippies are dying and leaving them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, so that's the only way I came aware of it is that, and I was like, wait a minute, I think I've heard this on Over the Edge, and yeah, you know, then you yeah. start piecing it all together. And um, well, if they didn't put those records out then National Lampoon never would have put out those National Lampoon Radio Hour records because mm -hmm. they were essentially copying the Firesign stuff, right. uh, as good as those are. Yeah, and, and, without, and they're great. <laughs> yeah, and without those records, you have no Lorne Michaels listening in and you have no Saturday Night Live. Right, yeah, So yeah. there's a direct lineage. I mean, it is, without Firesign, there's so much American comedy that, that owes a huge debt to them. Mm -hmm. And they were one of those things that kept evolving, too, because yep. as time went on and new media was available, they started to realize mm -hmm. radio wasn't exactly the best way for what they could do and that these records and, and then later CDs was the, was the way to get mm -hmm. to audiences. And yet they still kept one foot square in the middle of sort of live radio, doing these live radio performances and, and, and radio benefits and mm -hmm. all the way through their career. So, you know, Taylor just gave me a buttload of cassettes here to, to digitize. And there's, you know, stuff from 75, 84, 96, you know, they're all throughout their career where they're doing these giant, you know, kind of live radio benefits. Yeah. And and again, I recommend checking these out for people who haven't. haven't. These radio, uh, the radio version of Firesign Theater is like even kind of more amazing than the records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's very cool. And so like you were mostly kind of like helping uh, uh, massage the, uh, the old yeah. decaying media into something they could use for the film. Exactly. And like I say, the, the, the real genius behind that project is definitely Taylor. And he's definitely, uh, um, you know, very passionately drove that project. Uh, and basically what I did was support and, uh, and, and making sure it happened. Very cool. Very cool. Well, this uh, short film that you uh, that just came out this year, Anna, uh, what is your role in that film? Like, <laughs> what is my role? I made it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as familiar. I haven't seen it yet. I'm still so. 
<laughs> well, I'm still trying. I'll give you a link. Um, I'm still trying to get people to, to watch it. That's the thing. That's a that's a weird one. Mm. Um, all right, I'll just tell you what it is. You know, like it's a short movie about a uh, a girl with a hideous mother uh, who's uh, you know looking for uh, some sort of way out, and one day uh, Jesus appears to her and tells her that the certainly the easiest way to solve her problems is if she would just kill her mother. <laughs> Oh, okay. I That's see. what it's about. <laughs> hmm, okay, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing that. So, th- but this just came out this year, and so you... well, it just I just completed it this year. I Got shot it. it years ago, and it was one of those things that was trapped in in standard def, and I had to, you know, work enough to make enough money to transfer the 16 millimeter film to 2K so I could master it. Got it. Okay, cool. So this is uh, something you've been actually working on for quite some time. Yeah, it's not helpful being broke. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is how. This is the the sad truth of being a, a independent filmmaker is that yeah. like you oh, may yeah. you may have worked for Disney at some point, but that doesn't right. mean you have Disney's pockets now. <laughs> oh my God, no! You know, and the, the stuff I did at Disney, I did after hours when they didn't know I was using their stuff. So, <laughs> well, maybe we should mention that briefly. How did you get employed there? What was what was your role in in that uh, world? Okay, well, the uh, interactive TV company um, was one of the people I met there. My one of my producers was Prudence Fenton, who's best known for uh, her work on Liquid Television. Oh, okay. And all of those Peter Gabriel videos that mattered, the good ones with all the crazy animation and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Not that he has videos that don't matter. I don't know. I just know that the crazy great ones were all Prudence. Right. <laughs> so she was my boss over at the interactive TV company, and we hit it off well. And she would she dragged me around a couple other projects that were happening, and one of them was this project over at Disney. Mm-hmm. And what happens in animation, I don't know if you know this, but what happens in animation is one studio will get really hot and everyone will go work for them. And then enough MBAs and other, uh, you know, rats jump on the ship and they sink it. And then everyone has to scramble to get off of it because, you know, the MBAs are arguing over who takes credit for all the work they didn't do. Right. And then everyone goes to the next studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then you have like a two-year, four-year rotation sometimes where everybody goes from one place to the next. And Warner's was hot at the time, but they were they – were, their ship was starting to sink. And uh, my one of my um, executive – Producer was he executive producer? He's a producer, producer. Yeah, I don't even know the titles. They, <laughs> he was the guy in charge. He was a guy in charge, Peter Hastings, and he worked on. Uh, he was the guy behind Pinky and the Brain, and he'd worked on Animaniacs and oh, okay. a lot of these shows. And so he was lured over to Disney because Disney was dying. I mean, their TV presence sucked. Right. So he said, "All right, look, part of my deal is, you know, I'm going to run this as a weird kind of black ops unit. You know, we're not Disney proper. We're kind of on the periphery, so we can get this done." Uh, and so that we're not going through all these approvals, uh, how's that? And they were like, great, you know, we're dying. What we want to do is revive Saturday morning cartoons. Got it. And he's like, great. You know, they really haven't done a Saturday morning block for a little while. And this is around 97, 98. Yeah. A lot of that stuff is just completely gone or dying if it even exists. (laughs) Like, let's make Saturday morning fun again. Right. Mm -hmm. So we go full bore into our, into it with our, you know, Group of weirdos and freaks, you know, Prudence is there too. Uh, so was, uh, was Allie on that? Well, one of Prudence's best friends is Allie Willis, who's a, a well-known songwriter. Uh, you know her from, uh, she wrote all the music for the Color Purple uh, musical that's on uh, Broadway. She wrote, right. uh, she wrote September for Earth, Wind, and Fire. She's, uh, she's fascinating. So uh, Allie was another one of the co-conspirators. And, 
you know, uh, Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo was in there somewhere, and so is Paul Rubens, and like there was some. So we had the Pee Wee connection too, all the crazies that worked on Pee Wee, and wow, uh, yeah, I mean, so it was a great group to accidentally luck into. Right. So this is sort of the energy going into Disney, you know. A lot of fun, creative uh, minds that uh, are coming yeah. from weirder projects. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so, and we ran uh, a kind of a crazy unit over there for a couple of years, and it was it was great. I really liked working for Disney. I mean, especially under the circumstances we did. Yeah, it, it sounds like you got kind of one of the luckier arrangements where it wasn't as controlled as some of the stories I've heard where. You know, yes. Some some yes. animators are just doing these very boring, routine, repetitive jobs all day, every day, and it's oh, yeah. nothing they wanted to work on. <laughs> right, and I still have lots of friends that, that do that. I mean, that is... I've got friends that work on shows that they hate the show, absolutely <laughs> detest the show, it's stupid, the designs are horrible, but the crew is really nice and great. Right, right, right. I could see that, too, because like a lot of these people, you know, and this is the challenge with uh, the modern, um, at least animation world, is that a lot of the old school animation art forms are dying out, and so you've yeah. got a limited number of people that even know how to do this. <laughs> That's so true, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so you were there for a while, and then when it was kind of fi- fading out, you just went on your own, or uh, did it? Oh, no, they fired us all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was finding a politer way to say that, but that, that that's no, no, they more laid everybody off. No, no, they laid everybody off. It was one of those things again. We're like, okay, I got to tell you, I'm okay. This is a little bit of a brag, but I don't. But I'm going to say it anyway. And that is that while I was there, I was directing the most popular segment of the most popular block of the most popular show on Saturday morning. Oh, we, fantastic. We made them a ton of money. <laughs> we didn't get any much of it. We got, well, I got better money than I ever got in my life. So I was happy, but I mean, we made them just piles of money. Right? And, and was it just that they didn't see that at all or, or in terms of the success or they were like, Oh, thanks for making us successful. And now we'll, replace you with cheap people or <laughs> well there are a couple things that happened uh the biggest one was that the show that i was on mm-hmm. and the show that i did direct it there was a huge black shadow over it because what happened was before i got there there was a designer uh one of the artists that was working on the show in the in the pre-production phases who uh when he went to do the character designs for the show i was on which was a photo collage show it had all these little pictures from a yearbook mm-hmm. like a, a grade school yearbook and they were all talking and he used his own grade school yearbook. <laughs> oh, and he didn't change any of the faces. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then he became kind of a you know bad employee and was let go. Right. Uh, then about a year after that, suddenly there's a lawsuit from all his old middle school chums uh, saying you used our faces without permission. Right. So there's like the little, a long shadow over the thing we're doing, like, oh my God, you know, all this work we've done, you know, which was all in good faith because this guy couldn't, you know, not use his grade school yearbook. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And the lawsuit's totally kind of bogus because, you know, it's not like we used anyone's actual face. We were cut up and collage, just not enough, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, you, you could tell. I mean, I think if it was your school photo, you might be able to identify it, but it's not like these people were jeered out on the streets, although that's what they certainly said in the lawsuit now, wasn't it? Right, right, right. Well, and, and this is a very interesting direction that a lot of this kind of um, litigiousness has moved yeah. into because, yeah. you know, I always assumed copyright was going to be about, you know, bulk of text or audio or maybe a film clip, but, you know, the idea that people were going to get angry about likenesses never entered into my head. <laughs> 
Well, and in, in certainly in like 98, 99, when this was happening, this was they were breaking some ground. But the guy who sued Disney made a career out of suing Disney. That's all he did was sue Disney. <laughs> I guess there are those people that like, yeah. they see somebody with a nice fat wallet and they never get too far away from it. <laughs> yeah, so he just looked for cases where he could sue Disney. Interesting. Uh, and it was it was so pro forma. It was it was kind of a joke. I mean, I was deposed, and it was all kind of weird because you know you just sort of ask these pro forma questions like, oh, I guess you've done this a couple times. You know? <laughs> Not just a deposition, but I mean the Disney centric you know uh, questions. And they were trying to build a case that we were you know callous, sophisticated Hollywood you know jerks who sat around mocking these you know West Virginia yokels. You know that that, that we were you know poking fun at them and. You know, we had no idea at all. I mean, the guy who was responsible for it had bailed, and he was a, you know, like I say, kind of bad employee who right. had to be fun. So, well, and the joke was not about what happened to those people in real life, but what you did with yeah. the pictures after you cut them out and rearranged them. Right. So, right, and all the opprobrium and all the moral, you know, uh, sermonizing and stuff about this. What they really should have done was they really should have just called up and asked for their cut. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just uh, yeah, give them a. Disney probably would have put them on a payroll. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, they they would have got residuals, is what it comes down to. Yeah, if somebody had had a nice box of photos from like the rest of the kids in that school and just said, "Oh, hey, I've got archives," you know, like we work out a deal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So that that's. I mean, ultimately, that's how we all got fired. I think. I mean, we became kind of a problem then, and then they had to sort of solve it, and we lingered on for another year, and. Then the key people who had been promised things moved on to other stuff, and then we all got laid off. That's usually how it works, where somebody gets a promotion, they leave, and then the last person that remembers why you guys are there is gone. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that story a few times from different people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was also this kind of, you know, they, they paid for us for a year, I think, in order that we couldn't complain about being laid off for what we were actually laid off for. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I don't want to hammer too much on the Disney stuff, if only because it is kind of relevant to yeah. a video you made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, for Negative Land, uh, was that about when you started working on that after you left Disney, or? No, it was in my last year at Disney. I think oh. it was 2000. I think that was the last year I was there. Interesting. Uh, now, now uh, maybe you should back up a bit and describe how did you know Negative Land? How did they know you? Or was this a just a chance meeting? Yeah, this is interesting, too. Well, I'd been a fan for years. The My introduction to Negative Land's music was when I was in college and I had a radio show. Hmm. Uh, and this is... Um, um, why am I blanking on WNUR's name? But it's WNUR in Evanston. Mm. Uh, 89.3 WNUR, Evanston, Chicago, where I had a... Uh, <laughs> it all comes back now. Uh, where I had a radio show in the middle of the night, like so many people do. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, it was a, an, an upperclassman whose radio show I um, was watching uh, who introduced me to the idea uh, because so many people ha- came up with this idea. It's just none of us did it as well as Don. But the idea that the studio was an instrument, it just became mm. immediately clear to me watching another person do their radio show that the the only thing you should do is turn all the machines on at once and have them all going. Right. Yeah. This notion that like it's not just playing a song by itself, but that like yeah. you could actually have two songs or things commenting on each other yeah. or seven yeah. faders up at once, you know? <laughs> yeah. So here I am doing my, my version of the Dawn show, which is not as good, you know, mm-hmm. but that I've sort of think I've discovered. 
Do you remember what uh, years guy, this was? Oh, this would have been 86, 87. Oh, okay. So pretty early on there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so a guy calls up in the middle of the night. He's a guy who works as a security guard, and he's lonely, and he loves my radio show because it's weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, have you ever heard of this band, Negative Land? I think <laughs> <I'll> like it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll put it on. So I put on points. Oh, nice. You know, just, yeah, which is a difficult and less accessible album than some of the others. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is genius. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It so is though back. when you, when you especially if you discover it late at night when you're doing yeah. radio and you put that on like there's a yeah. quality of like I have found like the godhead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because what it is is you know you you know and during those those days you know I'm super into you know I was a punk rock kid so I was super into punk rock and at that point I'm listening to noise music like you know industrial stuff and Throbbing Gristle and Einstein and Neubauten and things like that and I'm like oh all right you know noises right and then I listen to these and like oh my god that's like a Kimball Swinger organ I think in the background there <laughs> like playing the vacuum cleaner I'm like these guys get it then they've taken it so much further than you know industrial saws gur snarl we're tough and they've taken it into like a suburban bedroom, which is like an obvious move, but no one's doing it. Right, know? right. Well, and, and like the funny part was is so much of the fan base for this other music, the, this industrial world, was exactly these suburban kids that were, you know, yeah. competing, you know, turning their Throbbing Gristle album up while mom is vacuuming at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was just, it was such a genius move on their part to combine those two things because it, um, it felt like we already grew up hearing all these things our whole lives. Yeah. yeah. And there, you know, it's a, it's also an easy, um, easy entrance to the, there's a little John Cage switch that goes off in your head at some point mm-hmm. or other. And you're like, oh, that's mm-hmm. right. Music is just organized sound. Yes. Yeah. You know? That's very cool. Yeah. So that, I didn't know that you had a radio show back then. That's fantastic. Did any oh, of the re- recordings survive or? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fantastic. Um, mostly, you know, I cut all my own air checks out. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? This was really endearing, too. And that is that years later, you know, at, uh, sometime in, in probably 87 or 88, I made a, a cassette copy and sent it to Don. And years later, when we were cleaning Don's stuff out after he died, I found that cassette. Whoa, that's fascinating. And that, yeah. And now that I'm digitizing these tapes, he, he actually played that cassette on the air. I never knew. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> this is the funny part is that you never know the impact that you're having yeah. on these kinds of artists. Well, I didn't have any impact on Don that way. It was just he was nice and appreciative. And, he, you know, the, the show was hungry for material, certainly. Mm-hmm. But what a boost to my spirits, you know? It's like the, the 30 years later, the other shoe drops, you know? Right, right. That's so cool. That's super yeah. awesome. So you had been a fan this whole time. Yeah. Uh, and then you're working at Disney. Uh, how did the idea to do a video come come about? Well, what happened is that, I don't know if you know this about Richard Lines, but Richard always had a number of really peculiar projects that he had a difficulty getting off the ground. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've been hearing about more and more of these as I as I talk to more people. I'm, 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 I'm starting to become obsessed. <laughs> well, well, you just hit the mother load because I work with Richard on a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> So what happened was in 97, you know, the Internet is still not everyone's thing, but I've been on it for a while because that interactive TV company mm-hmm. and uh, Negative Land has a website. They're one of the early people to have one. Right. Uh, they're one of the early weirdos. Lots of people had them by 97. But 
certainly one of the, you know, they and the subgenius were like the two weirdo groups that were really, you know, had a net presence. And they got it right away, too, where they're yeah. like, oh, this is yeah. another kind of media that we can yep. manipulate and mangle and have fun with. And it's not like a record and it's not like radio. It has these other qualities. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, I remember, I remember being online early on and I was like, oh, I wonder if they're on the Internet. And not only are they on the Internet, but they are in a way that's like better than most other music at that time. <laughs> right. So Richard is on the uh, the Snuggles mailing list. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know about Snuggles. Oh, yeah. I used to be on it. Yeah. Well, uh, he's on the Snuggles list and he puts out kind of an open call. I'm going to be down in Los Angeles area. I'm going to shoot a video. Mm -hmm. Who can help me? Who's got gear? Who's got resources? And I'm like, one stop shopping. Just talk to me. <laughs> you know, I'm out of you know, I'm out of film school. I know all these film school people. I know how to get cameras. I know how to get stuff, and I, I'll get it done. Right, right, right. You actually have the, the follow through. Yeah. So he comes down, and uh, and this is funny. This one I met Taylor too, because I met Taylor on this same project. So this is 97 and Richard comes down just on his own. He's, you know, at that point living in Seattle and uh, um, drives down. He's still got some friends who live in town and it's about Bob Chance. Mm -hmm. Bob Chance, as you know, the van man, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. another greats. Uh, Bob is, of course, uh, he lives in um, Buena Park down here in Orange County. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richard has made contact with him and we're going to work on a, a, on a Bob Chance uh, movie, essentially. We're going to interview Bob. We're going to make some music videos with him. Uh, and, you know, for the next, I don't know, it was like three, four days or something. You know, uh, I'm spending all that time with Richard doing this project. I have no idea what he's up to. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think we should mention that there's some uh, bits about Bob Chance on the um, California Superstation um, yeah. uh, Volume 4 uh, Over the Edge disc where um, they, they have a whole riff about the van man and whatnot. Yeah. Well, Bob's story is fascinating, too, because he's, you know, a... a working musician he was a guy who almost had a career like 500 times in a row and he just he never got a break wow so he's kind of like just on the edges as other people are kind of moving ahead yeah it, the story that i remember hearing uh from him was that um he had a song called colors that he had written super catchy song i mean the thing about bob chance is he writes these super catchy songs he's just a bit of a weirdo Right. So, uh, the, you know, like the van man is weirdly pervy, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's kind of what's great about it, you know? But he could write a straight-up love song real easily, too. Uh, he's just an interesting guy, so he'd end up making it interesting because he's a weirdo. Right. Uh, so he writes a song, Colors, and it's a straight-up Tom Jones song. I mean, it is perfect for Tom Jones. Mm -hmm. uh, and with the writing instrumentation, it's, you know, it's a, it's a home run. So it's going to be – whose show was it supposed to be on? Who had a show back then? It was like Andy Williams or somebody had a, had a you know, variety show. And Tom oh, Jones is okay. scheduled to be on it, and he's going to sing Colors. He's going to sing Bob Chance's song. And then, you know, of all things, <laughs> Apollo 11 has a malfunction. Uh. <laughs> no, it's 11? No, wait a minute. No, it's Apollo 17. Mm. 13, whatever it is. The Apollo that has a malfunction. 13, the unlucky one. Right. They have a malfunction. So it's his break. He's going to have this song on this variety show. Everyone's going to see it. And Apollo 13. So every inter interruption, yeah. Yeah, nothing's going yeah. out. <laughs> it doesn't happen. And wow. his career is just full of these things, you know, where he's right on the edge of something, you know, where a guy at a record station will hear his single and go like, 
oh my god this is great and contact his record producer friend like we gotta this guy's going to the top and like the day before uh bob signed up to join the army oh <laughs> wow. yeah wow weird so that, there are these kinds of characters though who like if you spend enough time in the music world you know they yeah have all these almost opportunities where, yeah. you know, they're just on the edge of breaking big and um, yep. they often become like regional stars or celebrities where like they're kind of known in their area, but that's about it. Yeah. But you know, to his credit, you know, all the way through Bob is putting out records. He's, you know, he's playing shows, he's working with other people. He's just you know not stopping, you know, and making crazy ass videos and, and that you can still see some of them here and there, like that weird one with the limo and, <laughs> You know, there's all sorts. There, he just keeps moving. He's just, you know, a true artist can't stop. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so uh, so when Richard comes down to do that project with us, and like I said, I've still got miles of this footage. We never got cut together properly. The music videos never got cut together properly. Properly, uh, and we, you know, keep talking about how we'll get back to it. Um, well, there's a cartoon I got half done making, uh, which was supposed to be, uh, you know, like on the old. Uh, old cartoons in the sixties and seventies, like Scooby-Doo cartoons and things like that, where they would, Scooby-Doo would get bored and they would make them team up with, uh, you know, the Archies or whatever. And they would have, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They would like, try to get some hippie stuff in there. We need songs, you know, like sure. kids are, kids love hippies. Let's put a song in there. So they would do those kind of shows. And so we were going to do one as if Bob had a, you know, had a, had a kid show back in the seventies, you know, like you just haven't heard of it, you know? Oh, <laughs> you could like fake the uh, graininess of the footage of being, Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a master at that stuff. Right. So yeah. I can always make look like old crappy <laughs> media. Right. Perfect. Uh, and, and dope out the old style of the cartoons and all that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So all that stuff's unfinished sadly, because, uh, you know, Richard projects had always had a hard time getting going. Right. Yeah. That, that would, that would have been interesting though. Cause like that would be a curiosity from, you know, uh, you know, the, these stories of artists that work their whole lives and keep trying to do stuff no matter what the circumstances, they're always the more kind of fascinating things. So. Well, I think because we identify with them, don't we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And here, you know, here I am. I can tell you so many stories having worked as long as I have and I mean, done all these things. And like at some point or other, you know, I'm like scrabbling to get 30 people to look at a cathead movie that I put up, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I was in a band called Cathead for a while. And so um, oh, nice. uh, when that came on the Internet, that was immediately oh. <laughs> all of us who were in the band are like, have you seen this yet? <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had a dream long ago. I keep a dream journal. I write down the best ones. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had a dream a long time ago where uh, and I love this dream. I wish I could somehow make it turn it into something. But I had a dream that there was this box that I found called instant kittens. <laughs> and, uh, there were little pills in them. And then what happens is you warm them up in your hand and then fully spring spring kitten comes to life in your hand. Oh, cool. Uh, but then you got a bunch of kittens and like, Oh man, I just made a bunch of kittens. Now I have to take care of them. Hmm. So it was a little problematic, but one of them was messed up and it just ended up being a head. <laughs> it's like a cat head. It was a perfectly happy, you know, it was alive. Mm-hmm just this little cat head and you think about having a little cat head in your hands and that was the and i was like oh this is adorable i'm gonna take care of this forever (laughs) about cat heads that's the genesis right there that's fantastic (laughs) i don't know if it's a genesis it happened somewhere in them somewhere in there (laughs) right on so you had been working on these projects with richard and that kind of led to making this video then Exactly. Got it. And Mark was sort of soliciting as much video work as he could because he had a kind of vague idea that they would 
you know, put out something or get something done. And in those days, you know, in two, 99, 2000, you know, DVD was not really a thing yet. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't like, you know, in the uh, negative land wasn't exactly known for like an MTV friendly video. <laughs> right. And so, but he was asking, he had a lot of pals that were, you know, willing to, to make some work and he was already uh, making some stuff too. He made the, you know, the YouTube video and some other things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he asked if I, if I would do one because he knew that I was working on stuff with Richard. And I said, well, hell yeah, of course we're going to do one. Yeah. What do you want? He said, oh, pick something. And I said, no, no, you pick something. <laughs> you know, it's like so much. I just love everything, right? And a couple of the really good ones where you know, somebody's doing yellow, black, and rectangular already? Forget it, you know. <laughs> so a couple of the choice cuts were already taken. So uh, I, I love the yellow, black, and rectangular one, and I love the uh, Time Zones video, too. Oh, like, yeah, that, both of those are fantastic. <laughs> those were already taken. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, he goes, all right, well, how about doing Gimme the Mermaid? I'm like, Okay, fine. You know, right? <laughs> Challenge it, accepted. You know, I well, I knew the track, uh, but it, it wasn't to me. It wasn't a standout track, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, or you know, the record was new enough that I had heard it a bunch and liked it. But then I always thought of Dead Dog Records as being kind of a you know giant huge piece, kind of like how Helter Stupid is. You know, right? Yeah, and, and it is kind of like a a weird thing to isolate just that track from that yeah. piece. Because it, it yeah. I mean, like it is contextually kind of so relevant, you know, uh, as a whole. But uh, yeah, uh, nonetheless, uh, you made it work. <laughs> yeah, and that was just you know my usual throw everything in a blender style. I mean, that's the magpie right there. You know, it's mm -hmm. like everything that I, you know, I'm in, interested in from one moment to the next, and the whole thing just evolved organically. There was no storyboard or plan for any of it. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah, I, that song, too, kind of summarizes a period of Negative Land's career, that a quite extensive one, too. You know, the leading into the lawsuit, the yeah. lawsuit, and then leaving SST. Uh, it, it's it's almost like a little mini drama yep. in a way. <laughs> yep. No, I, that's my... And then Mark chose incredibly well for that. I mean, his initial idea was, oh, you're working at Disney, so here's a Disney character. Go for it. Right. <laughs> I that, thought that might it. be the case. Yeah. That's as deep as it got. But the more, and we had all kinds of discussions about it and not discussions like what's going to be in there because he just left me to it and I made up weird crap and then it happened. Yeah. Uh, but we had discussions sort of about the track and about why they made it and things like that, just because I was interested and asked questions. And we both started finding all these connections and all these, you know, like m more reasons why it was significant to choose that and to make that. Cool. So, but that was sort of after the fact, you know, there were the, all those kind of magic occurrences that were sort of ended up in there. Nice. Nice. Now, do you, do you remember much of these conversations that you had with them about like con concepts and ideas or was it just kind of more like as you worked on, you would have more conversations about art? Yeah, just little things like that. I mean, you know, uh, for example, you know, he would tell me the story of who that voice is, the the lawyer that is actually screaming on that track. <laughs> and nice. it's actually, you know, lots of people, and Mark's very free telling people about this too, lots of people think that that is over the YouTube record. It isn't. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's about a friend of his uh, and some, I believe there were paintings that she had made. and But it definitely was like an angry lawyer guy who was screaming at her about, and it's the same issue, you know, it was about mm -hmm. whether or not, you know, she had owned the rights to the work that she had done. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Does that uh, that labor that you put into creating things actually mean something in this like yeah. world where people think they can own culture? 
Right, and own an image, you know, own an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mermaid herself in the video, uh, I thought this was kind of an, because we were worried about also about like, we know we're going to get sued for this. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> Like, okay, you know, I just got sued, you know, at Disney for something else I did. So. Right, right. <laughs> I'm All used right, to this. You know, <laughs> can't get blood from a stone, really. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we also thought, you know, like, this is important work, you know, it's important to do because that was the conversation at the time. Yeah. So well, I remember that uh, I had gone to Disneyland, which I like quite a bit. You mm-hmm. know, I have a fascination with it the same way a lot of the guys in the band do. Uh, and I'd gone to Disneyland and on Main Street in one of the shops there, there was a book called How to Draw the Little Mermaid, oh, which I perfect. picked up. Yeah, exactly. So which I picked up and then proceeded to draw, you know, I didn't use the illustrations of the book. I actually drew them. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. But I drew them using, yeah, using the How to Draw the Little Mermaid book, uh, which I thought, you know, maybe someday I'll tell that story, which I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like uh, I should say again, because this is a visual Thing that you made that we're talking about uh this video combines like what appears to be little clips of the little mermaid arguing with this phone call uh thing and her co- kind of like desire to uh, um you know like live in this modern world and whatnot is kind of parodying this idea of wanting to be able to make art uh creatively uh it's 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 fascinatingly executed um but that was the first thing i thought when i first heard it and then saw it i was like how is this not sued out of existence <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> well know. there are a couple other interesting things to note about that the first is my animation technique at the time you know we were like i say we were the black ops unit at disney we were doing some crazy stuff nobody was doing with that software and we were able to turn animation around much quicker than anyone else yeah cuz in those days gosh anything using software rendering was just it took ages yeah and we would all you know we would do overnight and weekend renders and a lot of stuff of course but we had developed kind of an and it's because we all kind of understood animation we all understood computers but we had kind of a modified Hanna-Barbera TV animation system that we had sort of migrated to the digital world before anyone else had. <laughs> and there were some guys in Disney's special projects unit, and they were invaluable because that's all they were hired to do is come up with crazy, new, weird ways to use things. Wow. Uh, and there was a lot of conversation back and forth between them and our unit. Very and so what I ended up doing for a lot of these things was I would do all the lip sync, which I found really easy, fast ways to do. Mm-hmm. And I would do the, all the lip sync through on kind of a dummy figure. And I would have the dummy figure. It would just do all the lip sync. So it wasn't attached or tied to any given character. I would assign it to a character later. Mm. So it was like doing it on a kind of a generic face or a smiley face or something like that, you know, like or a blank model. And then I would apply all of the the mouth shapes to whatever character I wanted to apply it to. Mm. So I had this big string of data for the entire Gimme the Mermaid, you know, movie, like all the, the dialogue that was in it. Very cool. And to do a test, I did the test against the little mermaid. I wasn't intending her to be the lawyer. <laughs> but when I saw it, <laughs> it just worked too well. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, no, this is the only thing I should have done. <laughs> that was a total accident. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, this is this makes it work. You know, it's so much better that the, that the Little Mermaid be the voice of Disney, the voice of the lawyers, right. the voice of corporate culture, you know. 
Yeah. Well, and, and but, like those kind of accidents too is kind of at the center of what Negative Land loves to cultivate in their music yeah. is, yeah. you know, where you accidentally flip something around and it has a whole new level of meaning that is almost too perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's just getting all your toys out of the box and throwing them on the floor and seeing where they end up. Yeah. 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 That, that's kind of like there again, you know, your, your John Cage, Morton Feldman switch goes off and you're like, Oh, indeterminism. What a great idea. You know, exactly. I mean, they're, they're, they're old, old concepts in art, but anybody who, hmm, who makes art and plays with things understands at some level that that's what you're doing, you know? Right. Now, did you have a role in the uh, favorite things DVD production as well? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I thought uh, as much <laughs> at some point, uh, we were collecting the, I thought I would do the video and that'd be it. Right. And Mark seemed to be you're like, kind you're of, turning in this video. You're like, okay, I'm on vacation yeah. now guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or something. Right. Uh, but then, you know, we started talking about it some more and this was the conversations back and forth with Mark and he's like, yeah, we should do something else with this. And I can't remember which one of us said, look, it's gotta be a DVD. Probably me. Cause I just done one, mm. uh, back in 2002. Geez, was it that long ago? <laughs> so I was out at Disney by that time, but I had done, um, okay, rewind. Okay, back in 2000, um, on the Snuggles list, mm. uh, we had come up with an idea of putting out a comp of tracks that people on the Snuggles list had put together. Oh, I think I remember this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, this this guy, Richard Holland, who was with a group called the Institute for Sonic Ponderance, mm had suggested that there was a kind of unique uh, method of distribution that he had pioneered, which he called drop lifting. <laughs> okay. And what drop lifting meant was back in the day when there was still such a thing as a music store, mm -hmm. you would go in with copies of your own CD and f just leave them in the music store. Oh, yes. Yeah. A lot of people this used to do this in the, in the old days. Well, this is the old days we're talking, right? So, <laughs> right. Uh, it wasn't very common uh, at the time, but he had done it locally, and he called it drop lifting. It's like airlifting, only he was dropping it, right? Right. So uh, we thought, oh, this is great. This is a fantastic concept. This is right when you know Napster is becoming a thing, and people's file sharing woes are becoming a thing. Right. This is year two thousand, right? So uh, we said, all right, this is it. We're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna make a compilation of tracks. Uh, we're going to manufacture it for real. We're all going to put our money into it and manufacture it for real. And when we take these manufactured CDs that somehow we're going to make with all sorts of copyright violations, <laughs> we're going to drop lift them all over the country in music stores everywhere we can. Right. And yeah, you know, we didn't we didn't have ten thousand copies of it. Uh, we it was limited, but we put press releases out and sent postcards out and let everyone know it was kind of an event. And one weekend in July, it happened. Yeah. I think I, I recall this too because, like, it w I felt like it should have gotten a little more press. It was such a ballsy move, and it didn't. I felt like it should have gotten a little more attention than it did because. Well, was, we tried. Yeah, yeah, we, and it was conceptually pure in a way that really pleased me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was something really nice about you know giving it away. It was something that was made of remixed culture, and we were not charging for it yeah yeah and, and and leaving it in places people could actually stumble across it you know that wasn't and online the, yeah and that people would actually might end up paying for it and the people that they ended up paying for it were for the people who ostensibly owned the rights to the music anyway <laughs> right right yeah yeah so there were all these fun levels to think about and to talk about with it which made it kind of a nice art object you know yeah absolutely absolutely that's kind of like the the beauty of this too is that like so many people get hung up on the uh illegal nature of yeah. all this 
And when you stop and you kind of pull back and actually look at it as an art idea, very quickly you realize that it has to exist in this form. Like, yeah. th- this yeah. is how it, ha- you know, it wouldn't work if it didn't get delivered this way, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, and so many people go like, but you're copyright violating. And it's like, but you know, you're not looking at it as a, as a piece of art. You're looking at it as a piece of something I can own. <laughs> Well, and then the other thing, lots of people, you know, I, I teach and my students don't get this because they were, they've grown up in a world of propaganda, but mm. the the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, I mean, then when, when that was right. happening, we were all kind of up on it and we read it. And, uh, you know, to this day, I don't think it's ever been used against an individual. It's only been that companies sue other companies. Yes. Yeah. And, well, it makes sense. It's like a lot of the the legislation for Silicon Valley companies, you know, all the patents and stuff are just so that big entities can sue other big entities. It's not for human beings. It's for them. And, you know, attendant on that is the idea that they think that downloading information is illegal. And everyone knows that it's not the downloading that's illegal. Right. <laughs> illegal at all about taking something that's out there and downloading it. It's about disseminating it it's about you know giving it out for free and breaking the copyright protection on things right right well sharing sharing music tracks has never been illegal yeah well and it's this idea too that like the the means through which we download it is the problem and not the person that goes out and then breaks the law afterwards (laughs) right you playing the mp3 that someone gave you is not in a violation of anything you know right. <laughs> uh, and that whole like you know would you steal a candy bar mm. would you steal a car and i'm thinking yeah i'd get away with it of course i would <laughs> are you kidding <laughs> i think we all would <laughs> of course i would steal those things mm. why would you steal some music I'm like oh, i'm less likely to take money out of an artist's pocket of course but that's not what you're doing right right you know yeah. i mean if it were what you were doing that'd be one thing but that's simply not what you're doing you know yeah. i'm not walking up to an artist punching him in the face and taking his album out from under his arm you know mm-hmm. yeah that's the funny part is that often you have to go and buy a copy of the 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 media <laughs> right. that you are sampling to create yeah. the <laughs> you know like well, i think I got- I got another friend that always says this too, and he's a genius for this. He says, look, those people aren't customers. They were never going to buy it anyway. Right. They're not customers, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, a lot of times these ideas of like taking money from artists that are surrounded yeah. with these art issues, it's really about the, again, you're in a situation where these corporate entities can't extract money from each other anymore. Like, right. That's the real issue. <laughs> right. I got a, another friend who's, uh, when he was growing up, his older brother, and he's a little brother, you know, seven or eight or whatever, his little brother, uh, the, the older brother would have something in his room that looked really cool, and he would say, you know, if you look at it, you have to give me a quarter. <laughs> you know, if you look at it, he's like, I'm not going to look at it. Oh, damn it, I looked at it. You know, right, yeah. That is like, kind of what it is, is, you know? Yeah, that is exactly what it is. Like, wow, you know, this is childish at some point, you know? Mm. I mean, we want artists to be compensated for their work where we can't do it. I'm just telling you that I don't get things done because I don't have the money to do them in a lot of cases. Right, uh, right. And you want it to be seen and it takes money to be seen. And we all understand that. But once those, once those goals get lost, you know, right. We get into all sorts of trouble. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, if that's not what you're guaranteeing, then what are we doing? Mm hmm. Well, uh, so I guess um, my next question is, like, you you put together this comp that was largely kind of organized through the mailing list. uh, And then how did that lead to uh, 
finishing my favorite things. <laughs> yeah, so now I feel, you know, like a big shot because I've actually made this D- this CD and actually got it distributed. So now I'm thinking, ah. well, this manufacturing thing's a breeze. Right, right. Ah, I've done this before. <laughs> yeah. Let's make a DVD. I can handle this. Yeah. So started talking to Mark about that. I'm like, you know, we really ought to make a DVD. And we know we're in infancy days then, you know. Mm-hmm. 2002, I ended up putting out a DVD of animated shorts from cartoonist friends of mine. Right. And these are all the cartoons that nobody wants, you know, because they're all too risque and too weird and too, you know, foul and everything else. Yeah, it's not so Cartoon Network of... style. It's it's something else. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We got rejected by Spike and Mike. It was great. Uh, <laughs> a cartoon that I made uh, based on an Ivan Brunetti strip. It was like, it, they loved it. They paid us for it. And then they're like, we can't show it. <laughs> Wait, we're too sick for Mike and Spike uh, too, you know, sick and twisted. We're too sick and twisted. Wow, this is great. I like this that you've worked with uh, Brunetti as well because uh, I have a fondness for his style. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> Ivan's a genius, you know. And yeah. this is also, I mean, poor Ivan too. This is his, you know. Ivan has now, um, he has. I wouldn't say he's repudiated his old work, but his old work is super raw and came from a very painful place and was very much about getting some stuff out. Right. And I think he feels a little, you know, like that was a little raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's older now and his stuff is so sophisticated now and so good now and he, you know, has thought about all this stuff so much and I think he, he thinks a lot of that's very, uh, I don't know, maybe not juvenile, but like I say, raw. So yeah. I think he I'm looking at it now. A little immature-ish, just only in, in formal style maybe, but not, you know... Sure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It, it's funny when artists grow up, too, because then they have to reevaluate what they've done over the years, and it, it, sometimes it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I'm sad about that because I still think that a lot of that stuff, you know, as foul as it is, as crazy as it is, I mean, I think that's really what makes it great. Right, yeah. You know, in the way that, you know, that kind of, you know, uncensored, uh, unfiltered, you know, Im- pure emotion peeking out from there. That that is stuff that the rawest stuff is sometimes the stuff that speaks to us the most because he's talking about feelings that lots of us have. You know, right? Yeah, and, th- and feelings that are often kind of we're not supposed to talk about in polite right. public. Right. <clears throat> and daring to say things that are you know these are ugly thoughts. You know. Right. And no one wants to talk about it, and here's a guy who dares to say the ugly thought. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's always compelling in art, and 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 it's funny how people often use that as a thing to be scared of rather than try yeah, to engage yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's you know, that's definitely uh, you know, you won't be able to air the name of the the cartoon that I made with him, but it's called uh, you know, Diaper Dyke and Captain Boyfuck. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which I made at Disney because it was like the foulest thing in that issue of Schizoid. You know, Schizoid. <laughs> I, I bet there's a certain pleasure of, you know, being among the mouse and uh, working on something like that. <laughs> yeah, although artists and animators are all, you know, they've all got that edge to them. We, like, we oh, all sure. keep playing to the kids, but everybody, behind closed doors, everybody's drawing, you know, dirty pictures of each other and everything else. So. Exactly. <laughs> and there again, it's about the kind of like the freedom that you are supposed to enjoy with art. If you, if you curtail your, uh, you know, where you will go, you have to show that to everybody. You just, that's what your sketchbooks are full of. And, you know, jokes for your friends. Exactly. Uh, but you don't want to clamp down on something and be restricted like that because, you know, who knows what, what detrimental effect that'll have on the rest of your work, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was something that was very, um, 
conservative about uh, um, I'm thinking about the far side collections where right. um, Gary Larson would be like, you know, I'm only going to give you a very small peek into my sketchbook. You wouldn't want to see any more than this, <laughs> you know, and there, yeah, yeah. there was something smart about that where he like he realized the power of that kind of raw, unfiltered, just an artist creating but he knew that he had to kind of only let people see kind of the edges of that because too much might be a little too weird for them. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think most artists want to connect to people on some universal level. We all want mm. to engage people on an, on a, you know, you want to make something that reminds people of feelings they've had or emotional states they've been in, or there's that sort of universal connection. And you have to, I think it was, I think it was Nabokov who said something about how in order to make something universal, you have to make it incredibly specific. Right. Yeah. Specificity is the soul of narrative. Yeah. So the more detail and the more, uh, you know, the more you nail it down, the more concrete it is. Strangely, the more universal it can become. Right. Yeah. You know, totally. So there's something kind of weird about that. So I think a lot of people, you know, mind their subconsciousness and mind their, you know, the ugliness of the human mind in order to get at some of that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some people are better at uh, revealing that than others. Yeah. And, you know, the, what degree of polish are you going to use? You know, I, I'm perfectly mm -hmm. fine thinking that somebody who has a fairly squeaky clean exterior and ma but makes really good work, maybe, you know, wallowing in the filth of their subconscious, but are just really good about ironing it out because they're making stuff for kids or whatever. You sure, know? sure, yeah. <clears throat> I think we all have so, a little of that quality to us too, where sure. we can get a lot more prurient if we want to, but we decide to put more and or less of a filter on ourselves. <laughs> right, and sometimes there's just the gleeful joy of being completely juvenile. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love Johnny Ryan's work. Johnny Ryan's a, a friend of mine, and, and his stuff is, you know, ridiculously juvenile and foul, and that's what's remarkable and fun about it sure you, you sign up for that like i'm going to see something that you know a bad uh fourth grader is going mm -hmm. to do although a bad fourth grader is who's very smart <laughs> <laughs> right well and that's half the fun of like trolling through all of these like old um you know zap comics and things like yes. that is that that right. notion that like you're going to get some fantastic art and it's also going to be crude as hell <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, because of the time there, there's going to be some cringy stuff in there, too. And that's mm -hmm. all part of revealing the subconscious. You know, it's what the surrealists tried to do. It's what they were uh, all interested in, um, I guess, with with, you know, with Dada and surrealism. Yeah. All of those guys were interested in dragging some of that stuff out. You yeah. know, Duchamp's paintings are all dirty at some point or other. Well, and it's funny how animation is like the last place left that we can kind of get away with some of this stuff, or, or at least, you know, drawings and animation as well, because I feel like so many other places become sanitized, and it's like the last place where a lot of people really let their, like, weirdness out. Yeah, and I think it's just because you have a, a group full of artists together, you know, mm. and they're going to feed off of each other's energy that way. Yeah, totally. So you, you put together this collection of artists yeah. that are making animation in this vein of kind of much more outside the the mainstream than even spike and mike right so because of that you know i think that a negative line dvd is a walk in the park right right that's going <laughs> to be no problem at all mm -hmm. and it turns out being like the most difficult dvd authoring that I've ever done and the most complex 
uh, project in the way that it's laid out and what we want to do with it. And of course, we're going to tweak the DVD format and we want to do weird things with it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we're going to put the little squant warning in there and we're going <laughs> to. One of my favorite touches. <laughs> yeah. So, and it just every time we come up with a loony or stupider idea, we're like, oh, we got to do that, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, it really felt like it too when you see this final product too, because it's not. Um, so a lot of banned DVDs where they collect videos and whatnot are slapdash at best. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. And like, it's I sometimes feel embarrassed when I like get it home and I open it up and I'm like, oh, that's it. <laughs> um, and yeah. And this package, uh, like much of the Negative Land releases, every little uh, design detail is thought out in very Negative Land ways, and so. I mean, it, it's it, again, we're talking about a visual medium in an audio form, but I recommend kind of glancing through this uh, DVD if you have it at home, because uh, I, th- I think it's uh, I think it's something that you don't see in a lot of other DVDs. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Mark went through all the trouble of, you know, he contacted the artist who did all the photographs of the Barbies and everything in the front, doing the whole sound of music things with Barbies. Right. And he coordinated all the design for the packaging that way. And and Mark was the one who knew David Minnick, who, of course, did the fabulous 180Gs CD that's inside there. <laughs> David is insane. That guy is unbelievable. I've never known anyone who hears the musicality in everything. Right, and finds a way to do it. Yeah. Oh, it's so, it's, acapella versions of Negative Land was not something I thought I was going to hear, but there you yeah. go. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's a guy that'll tune into like late night TV commercials and he hears an announcer and he, like I say, he hears the musicality of what the announcer says. He hears the tones, he hears the notes, he hears the rhythms. Yeah, yeah. He's just like infused with music or something. I mean, he's unbelievable. <laughs> totally, totally. You, have you heard, uh, um, have you heard Christmas in December? Is that what he calls that one? No, that's, that's Pastor Dick they call that. He's, his is Christmas in March, I think. Hmm. The Sursix. Have you heard the Sursix? No, okay. I, That's I, a David Minnick project. That is a fantastic CD. I need to look this up. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, you'll email me and I'll tell you where all these things are. So <laughs> this but, is the best part about these conversations. I know. Is is that it? I, yeah. I get homework afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, great. Yeah, <laughs> that's so, so good. Yeah. So Mark coordinated that whole thing, and then of course the video part of it was up to me. So then I ended up doing uh, over the hiccups. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which, uh, that, of course, I shot on film and made weird mistakes with the way I shot it. But I'd wanted to do a stop-motion piece for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd want to do head replacement, which is kind of a, it's the way that the old Rankin-Bass uh, Christmas specials were done. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Powell puppet tunes the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, where mm-hmm. if you want someone to speak, you have to make like seven or eight heads of different mouth shapes. And you can switch the heads in and out every other frame. Right. And the body is uh, remains uh, in, in the frame. Yeah. Could. Yeah, could. Uh, but the body may change, too. So it was a sort of stop motion body uh, with all these little bunny heads. And I've, I've still got them in a the little case here all arranged, all the little <laughs> heads. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And I had to learn how to, you know, I had to learn how to cast, uh, which I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a great, you know, making me learn all these weird techniques and things to do it. So these video uh, challenges are kind of coming up out of this project as well that you weren't really yeah. uh, anticipating. <laughs> yeah, and I have no idea where any of that video comes from. I really don't. It's just I just sat down and started drawing and things came out. And I'll tell you the, the strangest story about Over the Hiccups, and that is that uh, while I was working on it in the middle of it, I didn't know what was going to happen at the end. Mm. And suddenly this idea hit me about how the bunny 
hangs herself. <laughs> and I thought, everyone in the world is going to hate me when I do this, but I can't stop. <laughs> You're just compelled completely. <laughs> yeah. But I, mean, I knew like, oh my God, everyone is going to hate this. They mm. are going to be so angry at me when I do this, but I can't. And I didn't think it was funny. And I didn't think it was um, to be provocative. It just had to happen. And I couldn't shake that. Right. But this is the way it had to happen. And upon completing it, and I, I don't think I was all done with it yet, a dear friend of mine hung herself. Oh, no. Yeah. Wow. And I, hanging, where did that come from? I have no idea where that came from. Right. It's not a thing I think about ever. In fact, you know, the many, many millions of times I've contemplated suicide and never hanging. I, that seems horrible. Yeah. How, wow. Yeah. How the strange. weird that that strange compulsion would come upon me and then it would actually come to pass. Mm -hmm. And for a while I hid the video from, you know, cause the, you know, I, I'm this friend of mine, you know, I know her family and I know her sister rather well. And the sisters were very close. Right. Uh, and I, I hid it from her. I wouldn't let her, not that I wouldn't let her see it. I just didn't let her know it existed. And I was terrified she would see it because I thought it would be disrespectful. I thought, you know, she would obviously make the connection. I thought she would figure that I was making some sort of cheap statement about her sister's death. It really worried me. Yeah. And then at the uh, uh, Negative Land show at La Luce Jesus, she came out for that. Uh, and, of course, it was playing on a little display next to the models of the uh, the bunny and the, and the cat. And I, I caught her ahead of time, and I was like, oh, Michelle, i got to tell you, you know, before you see this, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. You know, I, I have to tell you the story about what happened here. And she's like, no, just let me take a look at it. Don't, don't preface it. And fingers crossed, she totally understood. That's awesome. Yeah, I was really worried about that, and she went into it, and she saw, because there is something about that little bunny and something about the, the, the hopeful little rabbit on that lost little little prince planet uh, that also reminded her of her sister, you know? And her sister's death was a perplexing thing. Uh, she was, she had a kind of a bright and sunny disposition, and one day that did kind of go dark, and it was not long after that that she took her life, and... We no one ever understood why or how. Wow. Yeah. And the movie became this kind of strange pattern for what had happened without me knowing that it was a pattern for what had happened. How strange. Yeah. And, and, and <clears throat> you know, I'm sure that, that that probably helped, though, in some way, because now you have made something that helps process this event in a way that's not just the uh, loss of a sister, but is actually part of this other larger art project, you know? And not just for me, that movie amongst most of everything I've ever done gets the most heartfelt and deep responses from other people who will email me, who will leave comments, who will contact me and tell me how much that one means to them. Wow. See, yeah, you don't even know you're going to have this kind of response as you're making it. No. You're just kind of following the way that this story needs to play out. Right. And like I say, I have no idea why. I mean, if someone said, you know, you were, you know, you got that message from aliens. They beamed it near your brain. Oh, okay, I'll believe it, you know. Because <laughs> it wasn't like I sat down and thought, no, what's the most sensitive and delicate way that I can approach this? You know, I have no no thought process like that whatsoever, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's you're, just like, you're... oh, here's what happens next. Yeah. Oh, my God, and I hate me for this. But, you know, in a way, we have to follow those kinds of impulses because I th think once we start thinking yeah. like oh someone's gonna get really upset about this i think we're right. on to something 
Right. And, you know, you get in trouble not following those, I find, you know, there there. Look, there's every room in the world for something that's pretty. Mm -hmm. I love them. You know, something that's attractive and, and, and beautiful. Great. You know, bring it on. I love that as much as anyone. But, you know, when you've got work that can do something else, then that's valuable, too. You know, right, right. Well, and I think that that might be what both of us were attracted to in the work of Negative Land is that. You right. know, this is clearly something that it's not exactly uh, pretty per se, but it um, it has a little bit of that kind of like um, humorous grotesqueness to it yeah. where yep. um, we want to keep looking at it. We want to find like the weirdness to it and the, the commentary that's being made and, and find the, the joke. Uh, and at the same time, like reflect on how much this is a, a actually commenting on something that is so taboo in a lot of our culture. Yeah, and it also it brings to mind. Um, here I'm going to put I'm going to put on old man, old man voice for this because <laughs> when he gets to be old after a while, is uh, uh, this is an old man sentiment from an old man now. I'm talking about the young kids and what they do. Back in those days when we were hearing negative land and we were listening to that stuff, there's a certain uh, sensibility. What people used to call, you know, what people used to call hip, right? Mm. You're to something. The old beatnik sense of hip meant that you saw around the corners, you saw through the facade, you saw things kind of for how they were. You were hipped to the true nature of things. Right. So, okay, guys, let's go Christmas shopping. Hey, Christmas shopping, that's a little commercial. Oh my God, it's the hipster, right? right exactly. It's somebody who's kind of hipping us to, like, you know what this is really about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, when you've got stuff that's critical of mass media, when you've got stuff that's critical of uh, <laughs> suburban life, when you, when it's critical of, you know, your times and what's around you, there's that sort of sense that you're being, you know, you're being let in on or that someone else knows what you know about, you know, the true nature of things. Right, right. That kind of like uh, whispered aside where you're just like, hey, yeah. you know. Now, this gets confused with irony all the time because it's somewhat hand in hand with irony. If you're already hip to things and someone points out to you that Nixon's a bad president, you're like, yeah, don't I know it? You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm more worst president we got. You know, it, it there's a little bit of humor and irony that's attendant once you're aware. Right. But now we have an entire generation of people who grew up with irony as its own function without the hip quality attached to it there's no awareness there's just the irony there's no insight there's cynicism but for its own sake without a reaction to anything Mm -hmm. so what happens when we have an entire generation of people who are deeply cynical but don't know why they are (laughs) right well things tend to tack and i think uh, wombly and i were talking about this things tend to tack a little more centrist or even right when that happens right right because it's it's disconnected. Mm-hmm. There is a deep cynicism, you know, like, well, we know everything's crappy. We know everything's, you know, uh, not worth it. We know everything's shabby. But we weren't saying that to see the true nature of anything. We were saying that just for the sake of denigrating what was around us. Right, right, right. Yeah, not for not for any insightful reason, but just to... Yeah, you don't, you know, you spend a little time on 4chan. What do you get out of it? <laughs> right, you know? right. Well, you get some laughs, and they're deeply cynical laughs. And people, you know, old men like me can look at the old deeply cynical memes, those memes they pass around. We can look <laughs> at that stuff, and we can laugh at that because we recognize the cynicism in it. But if you don't have, 
if there's nothing to set it against, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. You're just kind of like blankly yelling at the universe. <laughs> right. Now, you know, bear in mind that I'm joking about being an old man about that. I, it's not, I don't have any warning about that. I don't have any like, you know, you kids better watch out. You know, I don't actually have, think that there's, you know, anything to say about that on any moral grounds. I just think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, because I mean, all of this stuff is evolving in ways that I mean, we we I, I keep hinting at this. We're speaking today on the most recent iteration of the uh, uh, net neutrality debacle yeah. that's been yep. unfolding. <laughs> um, yeah. And as this continues, like the way that people criticize and uh, discuss it is going to become more and more controlled uh, online. Um, and so I, I, I'm hoping that some of the younger people are not just going to have cynicism and uh, whatnot, but will actually kind of like start to realize that now this tool that has become central to our lives is really going to change dramatically. <laughs> and Yeah, and hopefully we'll see the ways in which it is changing. Uh, there are lots of people who suggest that maybe, you know, the changes will be subtle enough or... Mm -hmm. uh, vague enough you won't quite know what is happening oh yeah well like my uh one dollar price hike that i got notified about through netflix <laughs> sure that's yeah. not, but that's going to piss people off right and so you're going to have uh, a lot of people are not going to pay more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know you're going to see someone try to tack on charges and there'll be demand destruction right we won't want it so we'll 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 opt out yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I'm hoping that that kind of leads to some of the creation of more new, interesting culture is that now we have like a new enemy to unite and rail against. Well, I think we're going to be on the slow pipes. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. From now on, all of our podcasts are going to download tremendously slowly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unless we can get them on university servers, you know, we hope the universities will be able to pay the you know fees to get, mm -hmm. you know, faster pipes that way they usually usually do yeah well and, and that was kind of how it was in the old days too where like yeah, access yeah. was really only through schools right um, you know i um I, you know there's one kind of subject that left that i i know i wanted to talk about that um uh is something near and dear to both of our hearts and that's archiving uh, over the edge which i guess you've had sure. a very large role in um uh, in, in some form. Uh, do you want to talk about, I mean, obviously you were friends with the group, you're already working in the Negative Land camp, um, so I imagine this project probably was something they were already talking about before you were directly involved. No, they oh, weren't. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I am shocked, but I, I guess I shouldn't be, because who, I, you know, the last person to think about preserving their own art is the artist. <laughs> exactly! So, you know, uh, one of the many times that we were visiting Don, uh, and really, we I got to know the rest of the band mostly through the True Falls tour. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. They had done a mini tour in Seattle and Portland uh, when I was, uh, geez, that must have been 90, 99 probably, right? Yeah, like right around then. So I did this little mini tour and took it out. And I had come up because what happened was the uh, during the True Falls tour, Richard had a, a puppet show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he did with the sort of Pastor Dick puppet show. And he had gone to the trouble of finding this woman who made uh, these hand puppets specifically for Christian concerns of one kind or another. Oh, whoa. Just for doing Christian puppet shows and things. So that was kind of her bag. Like she wanted, you know, to do them. So Pat, then, you know, the kindly Pastor Dick Sealand had, uh, had contacted her about doing these puppets. And they were, of course, for the Negative Land show. Wow. 
That's where those came from. Okay. <laughs> and he calls us up, you know, and uh, he calls me and, and my wife, Cecilia, uh, who's also an artist. And uh, he says, you know, I need a puppet theater and it needs to be portable. Mm. I don't know why I think you can do it, but I think you can. <laughs> <laughs> so we do. We organize this whole thing. We engineer this puppet theater that's made mostly out of PVC frames so it can be disassembled and we paint it and get it ready. So we drive it up there uh, and see them rehearsing the show. And I don't know what happened. It went from us driving this thing up to us being like roadies on this little tour. <laughs> just following them, you know, like nay heads or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You're we just not... ended up being on the tour. We just got along famously with everyone there. Uh, and that started it, really. That's my involvement with the rest of the band was from that. I'm trying to imagine the parking lot scene for neg heads because they're not like, you know, selling drugs to each other. They're just trading tapes. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> unspooled, right? Right. I got this reel to reel here. <laughs> yeah. Here's a, yeah. Here's a rototiller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone in the corner just tilling the <laughs> Right. Uh, or just has a has a has a tape of the rototiller, obviously. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, the, the uncut tape, yeah. The uncut tape, yeah. I got the whole thing. Uh Dolby C. So <laughs> that would be the yeah, that would be the parking lot. No, so um so as a result of that, uh, you know, I had a, somewhat of a friendship with them. So I'm close enough in L.A. I would go up there once in a while. And I was on Over the Edge a couple times. Yeah, I thought uh, so. Yeah, it was great. It was actually on the last Pastor Dick show. Oh, um, gosh. Was that the um, the black metal one? No, that's 99. That oh. was... Uh, no, they we did one in what six, 2016? I can't remember. Oh, yeah. Oh. There was one right at the end there. Yeah. So that's actually the last Pastor Dick show. So it was a it was a nice nice one to go out on. Yeah, uh, I do I do remember that one now. I was I was I was trying to recall because yeah, there was a period there where like I wasn't listening as attentively to Over the Edge, and then sure. of course that's when all of the tragedies started to happen. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we had a great time because we wound up all the callers. We really got them all steamed at us. It was great. Nice. Yeah, that I mean that's the the best part about Richard's performance is that like. After a while, even if you thought you were in on the joke, it started to sound like he was serious. Oh, my God. He was, you know, in the early tapes, it's unbelievable the stuff he'll do. Oh, yeah. It's, he it's... would, And he would just stick to it, too. He was a bulldog. He would not let go. Yeah. It's... He had this great one in one of the early shows. This is from the 80s where, you know, he's, he's asking people to call in with their Father's Day remembrances, you know, talking about your father. Wow. And these people call in and talk about how great it was their father, you know, and they love their father and how, how important he was to them. And he would go, oh, that just sounds fantastic. And did he accept the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal savior? And they'd go, well, no, you know, he wasn't much for church. Well, you do realize he's burning in hell right now. <laughs> and, and the thing is, you could kind of tell that he didn't want to say that because these people are like weeping on the air talking about their fathers. Yeah. Yeah. There are these little catches in his voice where you can tell that yeah. like, the character is taking over and Richard yeah. is a little bit shocked. <laughs> yeah. And he's so committed to the premise, you know, he's so committed to the, to the job that he doesn't let himself off the hook. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been grueling. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it made for some compelling radio for sure. But I, I remember I, listening to them. You can hear the discomfort, and it's it's yeah. on both sides of the phone. It's really yeah. fascinating. 
Yeah, and he would, you know, I'm now convinced completely after hearing so many of these old shows that Don would purposely screw things up just to rattle Richard. <laughs> I could see that. I could totally Because see Richard's that. shows were always a disaster. They always fall apart. They mm-hmm. always had something happen. And I'm, I'm sure I've caught a couple instances where I know for a fact Don is like pushing the wrong button or keeping the mic off or just somehow sabotaging it. <laughs> I could see that. There's a little bit of, um, and, and Wobbly and I talked about this a, a tad, where it seems like uh, Don had that, like, well, let's find the mistake. Let's let, yeah. let's screw yep. this up somehow, and, and yep. that'll be great. <laughs> yep. And he knew it was good radio, and he knew Richard was good for it. Yep. He knew he wouldn't break, and that Richard would just roll with whatever happened. I mean, you can almost hear them grinning at each other, yeah. you know, but you know it was not planned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. So, so you clearly had been on a bunch and were interacting with them, but like at no point were the you, and um, you helped with the puppet show, but they were like they weren't yeah. even thinking about archiving at all. No, no, no. So we go to visit Don in the studio one time. Like, there's a pile of just a pile of cassettes, right? Okay. And like, and Cecilia, my wife Cecilia says, Don, what are you going to do with all these? You know, what's going to happen to all these? And he's like, I don't know. When I die, they're just going to be here. That's my life's work. Whoa. And she says, is anyone going to take care of that? And he was, you know, well, I guess maybe someone will, you know, I'll leave it to all these guys. They'll sort it out. Wow. And I'll be darned if Don did not at that moment entrust us with his entire life's work. <laughs> he just gave it to us. Wow. We drove back in Cecilia's pickup truck with every cassette he had of his show. Wow. So that's when it began. Is that that yeah. the end of the True False tour? Yeah, somewhere in uh, a little bit later, maybe than that. I mean, it was a little bit of. Uh, it might have been might have been as late as two thousand eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because, yeah, yeah, because he like well, and, and he said, look, you know, you uh, no one's going to listen to all this. It's more audio than anyone can listen to. <laughs> so we'll be the judge of that. You're like challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, well, and I haven't because there was a moment where I had three or four decks going simultaneously to try to get them done. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I got to say, we were able to get all of those tapes finished before he died. So before he died, he understood that they were done. They were going up on archive.org, and his life's work was saved. That's. That that is incredible because not everybody gets that. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we were planning on doing an event at Archive because they've got an event space, and they were extremely excited about getting all these tapes, and it means so much to people in the area who all grew up listening to the show. Sure. And they wanted to do an event, and they wanted to do one with Don, but he expired right before it could happen, and we're all convinced that he did that on purpose. <laughs> it hit the ultimate move on his part of not wanting yeah. to be a part of the show. <laughs> Oh my God! He, there's no way he would ever have wanted to be part of it. He even said so. He's like, oh. and we're like, Don, you have to come on. It's your life's work. I'm going to Seriously, I love how talking to everybody, everyone's got a great Don impression. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> like, I, I realized this sadly a little too late, but I guess it's good to realize it all. But I don't think there's a human being on Earth who has more influenced my aesthetic than Don Joyce. Mm. Yeah, you, I had the same I'll epiphany. You know? I wasn't even aware of it while it was happening. Yeah. And I go back, listen to the, these old shows, and I listen to this stuff, and I'm like, oh my God, I learned everything from them. Yeah, it's I, I made this comment to Wobbly, but like, uh, I've my entire adult life has been spent listening to Over the Edge. 
And so yeah. it's been this friend in my head and my, in my, yep. my life and, you know, throughout all of my moves, all of my relationships, all of my jobs, yeah. that's, I, I've done that longer than I've done almost anything else in my life. Uh, well, and, the great thing is he's Brian Oblivion now mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from video drama movie. He loved, he is that guy now because he still exists. He's in tape form. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, I, I got cassettes behind me. You haven't heard. So it's like he's saying it for the first time as far as you're concerned. <laughs> well, and, and Mark and I, and I were talking about this too. We're like, they're going to use uh, existing yeah. tapes on new negative land stuff. So in a way, yeah. like, both uh, uh, Richard and Don are going to be voices, actual and uh, metaphoric, on these new records. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So uh, let's talk a little bit specifically about the archive project because I'm very fascinated. Like, so you brought all these tapes, and it was just you manually yep. pushing play and recording it yep. into a. That yep. is fascinating. <laughs> yep. So, so every every one of those right now is. I think maybe Taylor did a, a couple of them for me at the very beginning, and then he got so wrapped up with Firesign stuff. So I can't say 100% every single tape is me, but, you know, the bulk of them are. Most of them. And yeah. and, and, uh, and and working on this, too, like, was it always going to go to archive, or was that, like, how did that come about? Well, initially, we were just trying to save them. Yeah. And then at some point, we thought, well, we'll never host them. There's no way we could ever host them ourselves. Right. I'm sure the Negative Land website is not too robust (laughs) well it's just you'd have to pay for that much storage and it just got crazy sure sure Uh, and we yeah we we asked um we asked uh um kenny g at at obuweb about it Mm. and he was like guys you know i'm on like university server and barely able to get this much going (laughs) (laughs) right and i know i've talked my uh to death about uh his project but obuweb if you haven't checked this out oh my gosh Yeah, so I mean, we're obviously we're kind of looking for a fabulous partner, you know. <laughs> we wanted, mm-hmm. you know, we wanted to kind of fit in with whatever collection was going on, and we thought, well, archive, of course, you know, right. uh, that's that's kind of a no-brainer. Why did we? So we approached them and said, you know, do you want this? And Jason Scott over at Archive, he was like, are you kidding? You know, do you you have this? Of course, we want this. This is everything we love, you know. <laughs> and it just so happened that he also was a fan who'd grown up listening to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's everyone there was, you know, mm-hmm. so. Uh, we actually went up to archive. You can tour archive. It's fascinating to go up there. Uh, and you can go see what they're doing and and what's going on in their building. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we were invited in for a little luncheon and, you know, everyone that comes, you know, they want you to say what you're up to and, and talk about what you're doing. So we got to give a little speech about Don's work and what we were bringing to the archive. And the room was just full of people who already knew, you know, that's so cool. (laughs) That makes sense though, given the spirit of what archive.org is that they would all kind of get negative land in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, uh, I mean, obviously this took years of labor to do. Um, Well, still going on now, isn't it? Because, uh, now we're finding that there are fans who kept their own archives and Don famously never kept anything of the early shows from the eighties right. because he, you know, just wiped the tapes because he was just listening to see if they're any good or he would save some highlights on a reel to reel. We've yet to go through some of those too. Cause the, the, the effort to save everything Don did is just ongoing forever. Sure. Uh, but there were a couple fans out there who dutifully rolled the tape every week. So 
and had been for for decades in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've got some I've got all of 1982 digitized now, which is phenomenal. We never thought we'd hear these shows. Whoa. Okay, as a longtime fan, I didn't know there were that many from that year <laughs> that even we've existed. Got most of the year of 82, we've got most of 83 all the way up through now. I mean, we have got almost a complete there are going to be a show here and there that didn't get through or a tape that rolled out. But we have got a pretty complete record now of what these sort of lost 80s shows were. Wow. that You see, that is so impressive, too, because like this is, uh, you know, as someone who like my most most of my exposure to archive.org was like, oh, they've got every Grateful Dead show. Sure. You know, yeah. like I mean, like it was a great project yeah. that was looking it didn't quite get stuff that I was interested in, but exactly this last couple of decades, like they're really knocking it out of the park. Some of the projects that they've taken on are, are not only capturing media that's incredibly compelling, but like it's the scope is just increased uh, tremendously. And, yep. uh, and, uh, and you know, like I know I probably mentioned this before, but like they didn't even think about saving whole radio shows in the old days. Like that wasn't an idea. And yeah. you know, like, you know, people in the 80s weren't trading like, oh, I've got a complete, um, you know, uh, Mad Daddy tape. You got to listen to it, you know, like. Right. That, that wasn't Joe, how people Joe thought Frank, about it. Yeah. Joe Frank tapes used to pass around a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but like. Always, always a shout out to Joe Frank, who is uh, is not doing so well these days. He's uh, got so many health problems. Yeah. That's what I have heard. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, Frank, genius, you know, and uh, he was he definitely we would pass his tapes around all the time. But that was about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, just um, the fact that anybody out there was recording is uh, that's so awesome. I'm, I'm excited for what uh, is to come. All right. So the, the, once these are all done, it's probably a, a lot another laborious project of uploading them to archive. <laughs> yeah, I get a, you know, last time I mailed them a hard drive, you know, so I might end up finding to do the same because the last two years of Don shows, we have them there not up yet because I'm, you know, lame about uploading. It's going to be for now that net neutrality is dead. It will cost me a hundred billion dollars to upload these. Oh, yeah. I mean, you couldn't even have interns working all day to get it done. It just take forever. No, 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 no. And uh, well, you know, I'm affiliated with the university. Maybe university pipes will help me. But uh, yeah. For sure. But yeah, I got to get all these shows up. So, and I'm thinking about you know releasing them year by year too. Might be a way to do it. Just do a year at a time instead of waiting for like they're all here. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I have to say though that day that um, almost 940 some odd shows popped onto the internet was a yeah. pretty tremendous day uh, as a fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to hit a, a big mother load, but I mean, I don't even know how many hundreds of shows I've got now. I don't know that I'll double that, but it's hundreds of shows. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like we've, I've talked your ear off, so I don't want to um, uh, keep you too long, but, but I did want to mention that, you know, we, we've hinted at this teaching uh, thing uh, oh, yeah. throughout this conversation. And, um, <clears throat> and we should probably mention that you actually, in addition to all these other amazing things, uh, you're actually teaching uh, film. Yes. In contrast to all the amazing things I have to teach. <laughs> <laughs> No, my students won't want to hear that. No, you know, um, I started teaching maybe in 2003, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, and teaching is a really great job for uh, people who don't like to work a lot. <laughs> right, uh, right. Joke about that too. Actually, we work a ton. We just don't work. We're not on the clock the same way a lot of people are. Like I'm always carrying something home because you end up it bleeds over. You know, you end up doing a lot of extra work at home. Yeah. Well, and I nice. always say that I'm I'm working uh, another unpaid hour. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, yeah, no kidding. I mean, there's a, there is just a ton of that, and you know, it, you're lucky in that if it's your field you're teaching in, you know, you're interested in this field anyway. So a lot of the hours that would be billed on a regular job, you're actually enjoying those hours because you're you're getting to research or, uh, you know, to to get good at something you kind of would have been good at anyway, you know, or, or been interested in anyway. Yeah, for sure. But I teach I teach filmmaking down at Cal State University Fullerton, mm-hmm. which is uh, next to Disneyland. Yeah, so, very close. <laughs> yeah, it's right next door. A lot of my students are, end up uh, working at Disneyland, so that's fun. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, and in, in, in teaching, you know, you're doing kind of more nuts and bolts of how to put together films, or do you do any so, theory? Or No, you know, I used to uh, teach a little bit more generally, but as the department has grown over the years, I've settled into uh, teaching more production. Hmm. And uh, I prefer... I prefer it that way because, uh, you know, as you know, you can't teach anyone creativity. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And you can't grade anyone on aesthetic. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, you either have one or you don't. Right. Uh, And it's, you know, I I thought really early on in the teaching career, I mean, I always was uneasy about this and never did it. But I always thought it's just it's kind of a crime to assign someone a grade, whether or not you like their movie. You need (laughs) You know what I mean? You need to be grading on things like, you know, did it cut together well? You know, was it shot well? Was it exposed well? Right. You need to be, you know, the craft of it is really what we need to be grading on and encouraging. And then if you're an interesting person, you're going to make interesting things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you're not, this idea you have of tools, to make it, you know, you know? Yeah. this idea yep. of like you got to master your equipment, you got to yep. learn how to cut film. Yep. like they did in the old days. Uh, and, and only when you kind of understand how all these things work, will you be able to use that to make a creative product? Exactly. People always, because I'm teaching filmmaking, people always say, you know, like, oh, do you have any, do you have any talented students? Are there any talented people? Do you see anyone really up and coming? And like, what art planet are you from? That's not what happens in school. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, like you're a genius kid. Like this is not the Horatio Alger universe, you know? Yeah. Like, it doesn't happen. No. <laughs> now, do I, do I meet interesting people? Yes. All the time, you know? And do I like my students? Well, not all of them, obviously, but you know, some of them I like quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Some of them are first class human beings, you know, some of them are, are great people and I'm so happy to have met them. And that's what this job brings to me. That's worthwhile. Right. Yeah. You know, but, but- some of my favorite students are also the ones that get like a C in my class. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, take the class too seriously. I don't, it doesn't hurt me, you know, it doesn't <laughs> hurt you either, but it, you know, it's fine. You know, that's funny. That's funny. Well, you know, yeah. I, I've done a little bit of classroom work myself. Um, and, uh, I, I, it kind of ties all together because for my popular culture class that I was teaching, I did bring in Gimme the Mermaid. <laughs> oh, nice. Thank yeah. you. Which I didn't know it was, I just knew it as a negative land thing. Um, yeah. But uh, what was fascinating about it is that, like, the um, the part that did not land at all was the um, Black Flag uh, Gimme, Gimme, Gimme part at the end. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like, that's a little bit, was a little bit lost on the students. But they, I mean, they all grew up knowing Little Mermaid. So that beginning section of it was like they instantly got it and then they instantly realized what was happening with it. And so suddenly the ideas of appropriation and sampling made total sense. (laughs) Yep. Um, And so I I liked that, you know, like uh, if nothing else, you've made something that's a very clear example that students can follow uh, in those kind of courses. You know, and shout out to Craig Baldwin of the ATA uh, because he took that around Europe 
uh, and travel everywhere with it with a, a, a show that he put together of a bunch of different films, clips and shorts. And he's been a tremendous supporter of that piece. He, of course, uh, is also the guy running Other Cinema who put out the uh, Favorite Things DVD. Yeah. So, and and a, fa- a fascinating artist and creator in and of himself. I, I, oh, I, yeah, yeah. If you've seen his films, yeah. Yeah, I have a, I have a soft spot for him because he's... He's doing stuff that's uh, again kind of next level sampling and remixing. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. So Craig has been a huge supporter of that and he's carried it around everywhere. So a lot of people have seen it. You know, that video has been seen in a in a ton of law conferences. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, because of course Mark carried it around on his lecture tours and uh, oh, got and right. he got a lot of lawyers and law people interested in it because it's a good demonstration of some of the things that we're trying to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and it's funny too how like uh, after all this time of thinking that like these kinds of issues might be going away, we're suddenly heralded back in into like worrying about who owns our culture. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything I've I feel like I've missed or overlooked that you wanted to get at before we wrap things up or no, I mean, I can go on like this for hours, obviously. I'm a professor. That's what yeah, we do. <laughs> I feel like we, we could probably, because I feel like we just scratched the surface, really. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, but <clears throat> this has been great. Uh, like, uh, you know, as somebody who, you know, you have touched a lot of projects that I didn't even realize your hand was in it. Uh, oh, but, yeah, yeah. And so, like, because I stumbled across Naked Cosmos online, not looking at production credits and you know, it's, it's it's funny that all these things have popped up, and then as I'm like drawing this name through, I think I mentioned this to uh, Mark. This name Tim keeps popping up everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this guy? What is he doing? Yeah, so it's just kind of funny to uh, you know, finally connect these threads and go like, oh, it's all one person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, okay, I keep working. Yeah, yeah, cool, very cool. Well, uh, let, I I hope to see more excellent work from you, and uh, uh, thanks again Here's for chatting. That. There's a thing. There's a piece of Cathead Theater rendering right now while we're talking. So. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well. Did uh, you ever see the second one? The the second. Oh, I don't know if I have actually. Cathead Theater Two, which is the uh, the old '60s samurai movie. Oh well, okay, and it's I I can dig this up easy. <laughs> yeah, pretty easy. Yeah. Okay. Cool. You know, you know, I keep working. I keep working. going to do it for our program this week uh, my conversation with tim maloney here on wtbc radio and beautiful anywhere anywhere our theme music is by paco and laura jones our closing music is by the band x you can find more information about us at anywhereanywhen.wordpress.com and of course, austinrich at gmail.com. Join us next week. Uh, I think we're going to have some fun stuff on the show. We're, we're, we're getting some cool guests, and uh, I really like the direction these things are going. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no show. Be seeing you.
before we get too far astray, <clears throat> there is another project <laughs> that I wanted to ask about because this is one that's I've been very curious about and is very weird. Uh, Naked Cosmos. <laughs> yes, the Naked Cosmos. <laughs> Oh, I adore the Naked Cosmos. I'm the biggest fan of the Naked Cosmos in the world. Now, okay, I don't even know how how much background I need to give to 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 uh, to start with this one. So, Love and Rockets, uh, a great comic, uh, and it's just a stellar piece of um, cartooning. Um, when you look at it over the long haul, um, one of the artists involved, Gilbert Hernandez. Uh, does does he write? Did well, how, how did this come about? I, is what I want to know. How did you how did you meet this guy? <laughs> Good question, huh? Actually, you know, I had been a fan of of Gilbert and Jaime's work for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there again, when I was in Chicago, I or Evanston, and I would go to the comic shops in Chicago and find Love and Rockets, and I've been reading since you know it was in its single digits. Yeah, and, uh, and it's so stellar. I, pardon? It's stellar. Oh yeah, it's absolutely. It's you know one of the great works not just in the field outside of it as well so mm-hmm. uh these guys are geniuses working at the top of their form uh so i heard through the grapevine through my other um contacts in comics that gilbert had made this tv show <laughs> he had moved to las vegas because property was cheap in las vegas mm-hmm. uh and moved there uh from la long-term la resident uh and they'd gone out there uh to put down uh some roots and he wanted to, he was bored because all his friends were in L.A., and he started making this really weird TV show that he thought he would get on public access. Hmm. Until he realized that there is no public access in Vegas. Oh, no. <laughs> so after he'd shot about four episodes of this thing, which were all shot in like his house, in his neighborhood, and he's wearing all these different wigs and doing these crazy voices, and his wife's in it, and his, uh, his daughter, who at that point must have been, oh, she must have been six or something like that. Hmm. She's in it, too. Uh and, you know, the weird, uh, you know, it's just the whole thing was bizarre, right? Yeah, it has and, a very and, specific aesthetic to it that's, you, you kind of hinted at it. It's almost like cable access, but it's it's like cable access from another universe. Well, it's uh, the old-time horror hosts that were on, you know, local UHF stations when we were growing up. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah, yeah. So in different, you know, locales, you would have, a, they would want to run that, like I said about Frazier Thomas, you know, they would run horror movies on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon and there'd be a guy who would put on some makeup and like, blow, I am your ghost host, you know, and he would be the guy that introduced the the horror movie this week. Yeah, Goulardi uh, or um, exactly. something like that. <clears throat> exactly. You know, when I was growing up, Dr. Creep, he was the guy in our neighborhood. He oh, was, uh, I've heard of, but I don't know if I've ever seen any. That was, I lived near Dayton at that time, so anybody in Ohio, you know, would have known Dr. Creep. Okay. So, and Zachary was another one of those guys and yeah. of course, already, yeah. So, um, so yeah, he's supposed to be one of those horror hosts. But the weird thing is that Gilbert was making this show where there weren't any movies. There was just the horror host right. and people <laughs> around him. And it was almost soap opera like, you know, mm-hmm. cross between soap opera and a Jack Kirby comic. Right. So right. He was just giving these out to friends on VHS. <laughs> and they were literally made by putting two VHS decks together and hitting start and stop on them. That's how it was edited. Oh, it's so charming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't it? And he had a little comic that came with him too. And and being the fan that I was, you know, and knowing some of these other cartoonists, I'm like, how can I score a copy of this? You right. Know? And like, just you know, get a hold of him, and he'll probably give you one. Mm-hmm. So I did. He did. He just mailed it to me, and uh, and watching the whole thing, I'm like, this is amazing. Why aren't more people seeing this? Let's finish it. Yeah. So I approached him at the next San Diego Comic Con, and I said, 
you know, look, we've got to put this out. We've got to put this on, a, you know, I have a tiny little DVD label and you've, you've got to let me put this out. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you like it. I'm like, no, no, Gilbert, I'm saying I have some money, not a lot, but I had some money. We're going to make this. Mm-hmm. And he's, oh, oh. <laughs> it suddenly clicked what you meant. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he was surprised anyone would put a dollar toward it, but he turned over his original tapes. I re-edited the entire thing. We put new music on it. Gilbert plays music, so he was had a hand in, in getting some of the music that was on there. A lot, a lot of it's goofy space music that I made. Nice. Um, re-edited, and then he came and stayed on my couch for a week while we finished it. It was fantastic. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. Now, now, I, I imagine yeah. as a fan, you're sitting there thinking like, okay, I've gone from like reading Love and Rockets and imagining yeah. what the artists are like to. So, do you want to get sandwiches or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you were there apparently. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, so part of me is just you know, heart bursting with joy over this. Like, oh my god, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they always say don't meet your idols and all that stuff. No, no. Sometimes you can, and they turn out to be first class human beings. You know. Uh, well, yeah, at least in Gilbert's case. <laughs> Yeah, but like a lot of these people that I've met, you know, or I was a fan on the outside and like, you know, oh, I don't know, they could be creeps, you know, because it does happen, right? True, true, very true. Oh, God, I lucked out. This is like one of the, you know, the smartest, coolest people I know, you know? And and again, another one of these people, like we were talking about, who's willing to engage that real prurient part of his uh, yeah. creative brain and just yep. like... I want to get it all out in some yep. form. It, it can be some completely out there, or it can be very intimate. You know, it's it, you know, he's really willing to express that, and some artists really shy away from that. <laughs> yeah, especially lately too. Gilbert has has lost fans because he's just so willing to go way out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like that about him. Even when he gets into stories where I'm like, mm, this isn't my particular cup of tea. I appreciate that he's pushing those boundaries because that's what I like in artists is people who cause me to think about stuff that maybe I'm not comfortable with and maybe I need to ponder a little bit. Yeah, I think he and Jaime are working at the top of their powers now. I mean, they are just every issue that comic comes out now, I think is sublime. They are tackling stuff that I know is difficult for them to tackle. They don't even know what they're doing in half the time, you know. Right. And well, I mean, no, don't know what they're doing. Like, I don't want to, you know, come up with the bunny killing yourself. It's like, you know, they just kind of go into it and like, okay, where's this going to take me? You know, they're completely open to where these characters are going to grow and um, lead. To. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating, too, because a lot of artists, especially it started when they started, uh, you know, have kind of lost power as time went on where, yeah. like, they had their kind of strongest work in the 80s and then the 90s were kind of, oh, I can ride this crest of fame and then uh, not much after. But I feel like you know, the, the story of Love and Rockets over the long haul has been this excellent evolution where they didn't really dip in quality. They just they were in a new chapter or a new phase or a new, here's this new thing we're doing. Yeah, and the formal exploration that they go into. I mean, Gilbert's timing is crazy. I don't know anyone who can time a comic like he does. Yeah. He'll have so much stuff happen between panels. Like, how did you even do that? How do how do I even understand what you've done? Right. I don't think it's huh? that numbered that way nowadays, but it used to be Love and Rockets 10, the collection that was sure. like the 10th one where yeah. the back half of that story is almost like panel to panel cuts to completely other 
parallel yeah. storylines where yeah. it just goes pages and pages where like each successive panel is in a different place and a different time. Yeah. And you can still follow this like a, a incredibly complex story. And like yeah. very few artists are willing to toy with time and space in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I I'm a fan too. <laughs> yeah. So we got, we got naked cosmos together and that of course was our, our second DVD that we put out. And, uh, you know, it comes with a little comic in it as well, the same little comic that he was handing out before. So we kind of remastered that, you know, and, and put that out as, uh, as well. And, you know, that's certainly the most perplexing disc I think we've ever put out. But, <laughs> but people find it, you know, I used to, I told you I teach, so I used to show it to my students all the time. Uh, just as an example of this kind of what I think is, you know, we're on, was on the rise then and is obviously got an establishment now, which is these kind of cottage industry production, you know, where mm. people are sort of making the movies they want to see. Right. Yeah. And, and, and as low tech as they need to be, if, if, if that's what it takes to get it done, you know, well, Gilbert did some crazy low tech fun things that I've always admired. Like there, there, there are some shots in the uh, fight scenes where he, uh, essentially got a, essentially, I think a Ken doll and sort of dressed it like the character and he would throw it up in the air <laughs> and with the red cutting it actually kind of fakes out the idea of a guy flying you know <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah 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 well it's a lot of that like old-fashioned filmmaking bef- when yeah. you didn't have to when, when yep. the effects were all in camera and all editing based and you were like okay well this is what i've got to play with <laughs> and we've talked over the years about doing you know naked cosmos 2 and doing more and he wants to do it you know he's just a busy artist yeah yeah i imagine his production <laughs> schedule kind of keeps him from <laughs> yeah <laughs> exploring stuff like that right? Comic is always first, so he's always going to do that. But we've talked about crazy stuff because I I think there's room for doing at least one or two green screen scenes where we have one of his characters talk to another. I don't think that's breaking the rule because the Naked Cosmos has kind of an unwritten rule that you can't do anything too sophisticated in it. You know, you don't want to you don't want to break out your CG dragon, even if it were easy to do. Right. That universe has a very specific aesthetic to it. Yeah. um... Yeah. It would have to be like, you know, a, a. you know, a California animal that you found out in the backyard that you taped a paper fin to it, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know I mean, it would have to be like iguana footage that was in public domain with scratches on it that you put a lion roar over, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, he's kind of bringing back all of these B-movie ideas of how yep. you get stuff done, um, but doing it in this kind of like, um, as you said, cable access kind of way. <laughs> yeah, and he's a he's an absolute, you know, um, he's he knows... B movies chapter and verse, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. he will tell you about, you know, the scene in Abbott and Costello meet the gorilla or whatever, you know, that, that you've never heard of, you know, <laughs> uh, this is going to be my follow up question was that like, were there any like, uh, amazing conversations that you found yourself having with them? And I, I kind of imagine talking about Abbott and Costello with Gilbert would be pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah. All the discussions <laughs> have him. And, you know, to that, I mean, to this day, I mean, now we now have a friendship because of this DVD. So I'll see him at the cons all the time. And yeah, to this day, we go in and talk to each other about crazy movies we see. Well, we're always, you know, I'll find some crazy Russian movie that he's never heard of, some Russian science fiction movie and pass that on to him. And he'll tell me about, I think it's Abbott and Costello meets a Brooklyn, meets a Brooklyn gorilla, I think is the name of that one. Yeah, I've, I've heard of this, but uh, that yeah. I, it, it has slipped through my fingers over the years. <laughs> Well, and he's the one that introduced me to Sammy Petrello and Dukey, uh, what's his name? Duke, uh, you know, the, they're the, um, the Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin oh, imitators. Oh, yeah. They had like a, a couple of films, didn't they? 
Yeah, and they're miserable. But, you know, of course, mm-hmm. Gilbert knows all of them and knows every word of them practically, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, th- I heard uh, someone else mentioned this to me, and I was like, that can't be real. And then sure enough, I'm watching clips of it. <laughs> yeah, they're probably they're probably more like Martin and Lewis than Martin Lewis were. Right, right, because they're they're doing the, the honed parody. And... Right, mm-hmm. yeah. They're doing the stripped-down, most irritating aspects of their act, you know. WTBC Anywhere, anywhere, from my house to yours.